And good morning. This is Torah Portions here on Kingdom in Context. I'm Sean. Thanks for joining me. This uh, this is actually a part of our Torah Apologetic series, and we're excited that you're here with us. Hopefully, we're going to better learn the word of our Father so that we can defend truth. This is really how you do it. You know, it's not through all these different types of philosophies. Um, it's not through tricky arguments. It's not through clever inventions of how to reword an argument. It's simply by knowing what he's already said. That's that's all you got to do. You just have to know what he's already said and it answers all your questions. <laughs> now, then it becomes a choice of whether you choose to believe it or not. So if we're going to go out into the world and we're going to try to share the truth of our father um, and his son with the world, well, we need to know his word so that then they can make a good informed decision. So thanks for joining me. That's what we're trying to do here this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Leviticus. So I'm excited because Leviticus is a uh, fun, it's a fun book learning about the priesthoods. This is exactly the, the, the role, position, and job duties of our Messiah in heaven. So I think it's important that all believers understand what the role of priests are and uh, how they, they minister to the Father on our behalf. It's it's a just a, a wonderful office that they get to enjoy that they were they were given. So I'm excited to learn about it. We're going to learn about uh, chapters one through to the early part of six. And then we've got a couple companion passages. As always, guys, what we try to do is I'll read the main portions from Leviticus. And, and as we go to the companion passages, I'll put on screen uh, this banner here that you see. Uh, well, hang on a second. Let me make sure it's updated with this week's link. So I'll put this uh, call in link on screen. And that way you can actually call in if you're ready to be on camera. Um, you can call in when I flash this on screen after we read the main chapters and then uh, you're welcome to ask any questions or provide any commentary. We try to keep those segments in between chapters with live call-ins about 10 minutes long. That way we can keep moving forward and get to all the, all the content that we need to read today. So be looking for that as always like share and subscribe here to get a thumbs up so that this video gets shared to other people. And, uh, and if you do enjoy what it's about, share it on your socials. So I appreciate it. I want to thank everyone for being here. We already, it looks like we have some, um, Familiar names in the in the live chat. Thanks for coming back, guys. Arc Builder CCMC, Q, Jace Forbes, a big red G, Mark Allen, Master Soup, Sergey Narivnichik. Now Sergey Narivonchik. Sorry about that. Um, I think I got that right. Nikki Latimer. Hannibal's back. Mark Allen. Jeremiah 1516. Katie McD. Angelo's back. LJ Angelo is back. Paula Disciple, Scott McVicker. Welcome, everybody. I just want to give you guys a, a huge shout out. Thank you for um, praying for us. Thank you for writing us letters of encouragement. Thank you for uh, writing us and sending us support as well as, as some of you have. You guys are amazing. Um, okay. Mike K. Gunders back. Shannon Mackey, The Great Deception is back. Howard Sanford, Windfeather. Good to see everybody here. Earl Rogers. Uh, Controversy of Elohe, Matt L, Franken Beans, Carla Malberg. Welcome back, everyone. Okay, let's jump right into it. Uh, we have five chapters to cover today, so I don't want to uh, draw this out too much longer. There's a lot to cover. All right, so we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter one first. And it says, The Lord spoke to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, may you bring you may bring as your offering an animal from the herd or the flock. If one's offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to present an unblemished male. He must bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for its acceptance before the Lord. He's to lay his hand 
on the head of the burnt offering so it may be so it can be accepted on its behalf to make atonement for it and he shall slaughter excuse me to make atonement for him and he shall slaughter the young bull before the lord and the aaron's sons the priests are to present the blood and sprinkle it on all sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting next he is to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces the sons of aaron the priests shall put a fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire and then Aaron's sons, the priests, are to arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, atop the burning wood on the altar. Real quick, guys, I just want to uh, lovingly just hopefully give you a, a, a helpful perspective as we read some of these chapters here, okay? We're we'll going through the details of what a priest does when he brings animals before the Lord. Guys, I want you to listen to what I'm reading, but I, I want you to think in your mind of a watching you know your uncle your father your grandfather yourself watching someone cook a barbecue in the backyard with a nice big barbecue pit they're going to bring the animals that are prepared now the, the step that's being included in these instructions is the step that in our modern society we don't normally see because that's done separately at a slaughterhouse before the meat is taken to the grocery store for us to buy but then we buy that prepackaged and trimmed meat we bring it home and we we bring our spices we bring our other food we cook up, we get the, the fire going on the, in the grill and we get, we bring forth this food to the grill, right? So this is similarly exactly what we're reading back in the day. This is the instructions. The father was like, Hey, I want my priest to make a meal before me. It's not this, this process we're reading about is not a burden. This process we're reading about is not magic. It's not witchcraft. It's not voodoo. It's not some strange mysticism. And there's nothing, uh, like I said, there's nothing burdensome or, or troubling about this. This is literally just the father saying, hey, let's cook a meal together for these specific reasons on these days. And uh, I'd like you to bring these ingredients, right? And I'd like you to cook it on this particular altar. That's a really nice altar, by the way. It's made with really nice materials. Um, and I want you to use uh, these certain chefs to make it. Right. And by the way, I want that chef to like me <laughs> just like any king wants his chefs preparing the food for him to be loyal to him. So does our king. So does so does the king of heaven and earth, the father and the son. They, they want their chefs to like them. Right. So they want a chef that has a circumcised heart, one that is uh, obedient to the father's ways, that wants to do his ways. And this is just a part of his ways. Right. Of his law, his Torah is simply this idea of cooking a meal in a specific way so that you can have a meal with the father. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, and very relatable set of chapters that we're, we're delving into here. Verse nine, the entrails and legs must be washed with water and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If however, one's offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from the sheep or the goats, he's to present an unblemished male. He shall slaughter it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, are to sprinkle its blood on the altar on all sides. He is to cut the animal into pieces and present, and the priest shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, atop the burning wood that is on the altar. The entrails and the legs must be washed with water. And the priests shall bring all of it and burn it on the altar. And its burnt offering and an offering made by fire, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Oh, sorry, guys. All right. If instead, uh, was it doing that? There we go. If instead one's offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, he is to present a turtle dove or a young pigeon. Then the priest shall bring it into the altar, twist off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. 
He is to remove the crop with its contents and throw it to the east side of the altar in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings without dividing the bird completely. And the priest is to burn it on the atop the altar. Excuse me. The priest is to burn it on the altar atop the burning wood. It's a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, real quick, guys, this this particular part in chapter one that we're reading is the offering for the father. So this is the father saying, look, these particular ingredients, um, go ahead and, and burn these up to me. See, this, and I'm going to that sweet aroma that results as you burning these completely. Um, this is what's sometimes referred to as an ascent offering because the priest didn't usually eat of the burnt offering. Right. They ate of the sin offering, the grain offerings, the other things that we're about to read about. So that so what we're reading about right now is the portion that they would be preparing, if you will, for the father who's physically and literally not there. So as a result of that, there it's just going to be on the altar and get burned completely. Okay, so that's it's essentially they're not going to cook it to a certain temperature, put it on a plate, and set it in a, at a table with an empty chair that no one's sitting in. They're not going to go through all those motions. The idea of serving the portion of the father to the father is leaving it on the altar, let it burn completely up. Why? It's actually kind of unique because where is the father? So the father is in heaven above. He designed a creation model with multiple layers as detailed in Genesis and many other places. These multiple layers of the firmament that he created, he lives at the top. That's why it's called the most high. Well, where does smoke rise? Smoke rises. Now, a lot of people say, yeah, but Sean, I mean, the, the creation model weren't enclosed in our layer of the firmament. The smoke doesn't get there. No, it doesn't. But at the same time, it's it, this whole concept, just as in the symbolism of them taking this prepared meal, since the father's physically and literally not there, and they're offering it to the father as a part of these instructions. Well, the same symbolism is that that offering is ascending, that smoke is ascending to where the father in the direction the father is, just like they're going through the motions to present this to the direction of the father who in a normal setting in the future when we're resurrected and we're in his house and we can be near him with our new spiritual bodies, we will watch him eat with us. We will watch him at the wedding supper of the lamb at the, you know, these concepts where we can actually be around the father, just like the angels can, can be around the father, just like he has these specific angels of the presence that go around and before him. So the idea is it's not just simply, um, it's, it's not just simply an idea of, uh, you're just wasting food. It's right now, this particular portion is for the symbolism of this is where the father would be. So instead, we're going to put it in his direction. The smoke is going to go in his direction. This is, this is dedicated for him. And, and after this, in chapters two through seven, we're going to read about uh, some of the altar, the meals that would be created where the priest can take part in it. They eat their portion of it on behalf of the people. So there's, um, again, we're just making food for different people. And this is just one of the instructions. All right, guys. So this is uh, the end of chapter one. You guys are welcome to call in if you have any questions or comments. Uh, the link is at the bottom on the screen here. And uh, one second, let me also put it in the live chat as well. So if you guys want to call in, you're welcome to. I'm going to go ahead and go to some of these companion passages. Isaiah chapter 60 says, lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried on the arm. Then you'll look and be radiant. Your heart will tremble and swell with joy because the riches of the sea will be brought to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. Caravans of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all from, the, and all from Sheba will come bearing gold and frankincense and in proclaiming the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you and go up on my altar with acceptance. 
I will adorn my glorious house. How beautiful is this, guys? This is actually Isaiah chapter 60. So this is the father speaking to Zion. That's the, the pronoun you that's being used here in this passage. Just to give you some context, you is speaking of Zion. That's the new Jerusalem. That's the city of God. That's why he can use in the last sentence in verse 7, he can talk about the rams of Nebioth will go up on, will, the rams of Nebioth will serve you and go up on my altar. So this is the father speaking to his house in this uh, prose, this type of writing style, um, explaining to her that she will have um, animals that will be brought on the altar inside of her house. So the reason why I'm pairing up as a companion passage to what we read in Leviticus 1 is because there is a large amount of Christian churches today that teach that the law is done away with because sacrifices were unnecessary and were evil and were bad. But that's not true. Here is a picture of the future. The new Jerusalem has descended. It's called Zion in the Old Testament. And it's going to have sacrifices, meals being prepared inside of it. Of course it will, because we're going to eat. Of course it will. When you get your spiritual body, a body like the angels have, you're going to eat food, just like they eat food. Just like we saw our Messiah in John chapter 20, he ate food after he was resurrected and received his glorified spiritual body. So this is this is an important point of context I think people need to understand. Uh, this is not a, you know, this concept of sacrifices is a word that's been demonized. But really, it's literally just to have a fellowship meal with your father. That's the way he designed it. So it's it's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. Just like you would love to have a meal with, you know, someone that you look up to or respect. You know, just like the world, um, who may not be accustomed with the ways of the father, who may not love the father, the world would love to have a meal with a king or a prince or a celebrity, right? Because that's that's you know the epitome of getting to sit and dine with, break bread with somebody, right? That's, it's instilled into human nature, this idea of fellowshipping through eating a meal together. The Father is, is the exact same way. That's where we get that desire. That's where we get that human trait is from the Father because we're made in His image. And we have His, His behavior imprinted in our conscience to a degree, right? That's what Paul talks about in Romans 2, uh, 6 through 16. So it's to a group. This is what's going to either con, you know, uh, accuse us or condemn us. Excuse me. That's going to affirm us or condemn us on the day that we are um, standing judgment for Yeshua and our secrets are judged. So this is why, you know, the same standard of behavior that the creator put within us, us, the image bearers of God, that's also in the world. And, but they just unfortunately use it in idolatrous fashions, right? They use it in a way of, of coveting attention from the wrong things, right? Well, the father's showing us in Leviticus chapters one through seven, how the priests is, are engaging in a process the father set up in order to get the father's attention be able to hang out with the father and share a meal with him. It's pretty amazing. So Isaiah chapter 60 refutes. Okay. So if we're looking at apologetics of the father's instructions of the father's Torah, Isaiah chapter 60 refutes the bad teachings from churches that say that sacrifices were a bad thing. The law's done away with. Unfortunately, there's a lot of modern teachings today, even amongst uh, Torah observant people, as well as um, Christians that claim that we were never supposed to eat meat and that it was a bad thing. And that's why he had to do away with sacrifices. And that's also very unscriptural. That's very incorrect. So it's something to keep in mind as well. All right here. Jeremiah 6. And the reason why I want to put this contrasting passage up here is because this is just a short little passage from Jeremiah. Because he's actually saying when he does not enjoy sacrifices is when people do it with the wrong heart. Or they're being duplicitous or hypocritical when they do it. So here in 
Jeremiah 6, 16 through 20, it says, This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Where is the good way? Then walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk in it. That's someone with a bad heart, right? He says, I appointed watchmen over you and said, Listen for the sound of the ram swarm. But they answered, We will not listen. This is someone that's being rebellious. Okay. He says, Therefore, hear, O nation, and learn, O congregations, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth. I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their own schemes, because they've paid no attention to my word and have rejected my instructions. They're rejecting Torah. So then look at the very next verse. Is what used to me as frankincense from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. So these are people that are still participating in these Levitical priestly sacrifices but they have the heart that's been already strayed away from the Father. So now they're doing it with the wrong heart. They're going through the motions, but doing it without loyalty to the Father. And he doesn't like that. This is in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel when there was great apostasy amongst the Levitical priesthood. So it looks like we, um, someone's trying to call in, but your, your device is not connecting. So you may want to back out, try to call in again if you're listening to the sound of my voice because it's not connecting to let you into the studio. So... Try, just try again, brother or sister. All right, guys, so let's keep going here. In Proverbs 15, we also see another instance here where it says, The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. So did you guys realize that a part of bringing sacrifices with the priesthood was that they also bring the prayers of the saints? That's the, the, the idea of the priesthood, the, the priests themselves, the mediators, right, the people that are that have been a appointed on behalf of mankind and they're chosen from mankind as hebrews 5 1 through 5 explains because they can you know mediate on behalf of mankind but that's where they're bringing the prayers of mankind with them to the, excuse me with them to the father and that's his delight when there's an upright person doing that when the, the prayers of the upright are brought to him that's his delight but the sacrifice of the wicked is detestable so whenever people start to bring uh passages to you that say Oh, well, look, well, God says he doesn't delight in sacrifices. Well, look at the context and see who he's talking to. Is he talking to someone that's good? Like he just mentioned in the previous passage in Jeremiah 16, someone that searches for the good way, someone that is accepting his instructions, or is he speaking to someone that's wicked, someone looking for the bad way, someone rejecting his instructions? That's, that's the caveat. That's the context is what depends on whether he accepts the sacrifice or doesn't like it. It's very simple. Again, do you want your enemies serving you a meal? You see what I'm saying? Do you want your enemy serving you a meal? Someone that wants to kill you, someone that hates you? Do you want them serving you a meal? The father doesn't enjoy that fellowship. That's not a fellowship for him. That's not a fellowship for you. If you had to, if you had to be served by your enemies a meal, would you even trust what you're eating? You see what I'm saying? So no, and this is a totally different context to Psalm 23. The father prepares the banquet table and presents my enemies. It's a totally different concept. All I'm trying to say right here is this idea of sacrifice is the idea that the father just wants the person who has a loyal heart to him to make this make a specific type of food. It's very simple. Very simple. All right. So someone is trying to call in brother or sister. You're going to have to give permission to use your mic and your camera so that it actually brings you into the studio. So if it, you should see prompting on your device or your laptop or your desktop computer so that you can actually come into the studio using your camera and your microphone so you can interact. So otherwise it's, it's just going to keep you as device not connected basically. That's what it's showing me, and that's why I can't bring you on screen. So just keep trying, but you have to you have to give it permission. All right.
And as always, guys, if you have a question, put in all capitalization. That way it's easy for myself or for the moderators to see it. So that means turn your caps lock on, type the whole question out with capitalization, and then turn your caps lock off and press enter. That way we can see it easily and get to it amongst the, all the people chatting. It looks like Windfeather has a quick question. He says, is there any specific meaning for the sprinkling of blood on the altar a certain way and any certain meaning doing it that way to the father? Well, there's a couple different places where they sprinkle blood and on the horns of the altar and different places like that. So I'm not sure which part you're referring to, but Hebrews talks about um, how the, the furniture of the tabernacle was cleansed with the sprinkling of the blood. And so um, that's, hopefully that's a quick answer for you. It was supposed to be for a sense of cleansing. How does that work on a biological level of physics? How does sprinkling the blood of the, of the spotless animal cleansing a specific concept? Um, I don't know on a physics scientific level how that works. I'll be honest with you. I actually asked that one time um, when I was at a, a, a Bible study, not really a Bible study. It was more like a Sunday school group. And I was, there was two doctors there. One of them was an actual blood um, specialist what they call them pathologists. Um, so, you know, I was asking, I was like, what do you think it might mean that, that the father uses blood, you know, to, to sanct, to purify the vessels in the temple and stuff like that. She had no clue. She was like, well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, she's like, per se, it's not exactly dirty, especially if it's a, if it's a, you know, if there's no disease in the animal, she goes, but it's, I don't really know what actual properties it might have that, that would cleanse in that way, especially because they're not putting it on everything. They're just putting it on the tips of the horns of the altar and they're, you know, they sprinkle it here and there a little bit. And then the majority of the blood is actually drained on the ground into the earth. So that's interesting. Um, so there is some things about it that, uh, and to me, that's, I'm going to actually going to get that to the idea of draining the blood on the ground here in the subsequent chapters. I think it's chapter four, as we look at some companion passages in the Testament 12 patriarchs, because the father does not actually accept blood upon his altar as far as making a meal for you right just like when you again when you bring groceries home you know if your steak is too bloody where well, you you press it out and i don't personally say that okay let me back up if you bring if, if you bring home a steak that is full of blood then they didn't chop it right they didn't slaughter it right at the um at the at the house at the slaughterhouse if you will okay because what the um what is actually in this, the, the redness liquidy substance that gets cooked out when you put it on the grill, the idea of that concept, it's uh, myoglobin. I think it's what it's called, but it's not hemoglobin. It's not the actual blood. It's just another uh, fluid that's in the muscle tissue. That's in the actual the meat of, of the animal, but it's not, they've actually drained the, the animal of all its blood previously. Uh, or they're supposed to anyway at the slaughterhouse. So totally different concept that actually be in real blood. But all I'm trying to say is, there's this this concept yeah brother i, I apologize i'm gonna have to keep moving I, I wanted to answer this question and give you some time to try to call in and connect your device but it's not connecting your device whoever's trying to connect so i'm gonna have to keep moving to the next chapter i apologize it's you're for whatever reason it's it's not letting you in and or you're not giving it permission on your device to let you in so just just try again later once we get past the next chapter but uh wind feather I'm sorry I'm belaboring this a little bit. I was trying to I was trying to stall and give them a chance to come in a little bit, but ultimately it's for cleansing of the of the furniture of the tabernacle. But we're going to get to the idea of why the blood will be poured out on the ground here in a little bit. Um Okay. So now my wife is trying to say it's her, but 
it definitely is not showing your name. It's weird. It's showing a very weird, um, weird name that's popping up and it's not yours. So I don't know. Don't, we'll just try again later. <laughs> or how about you just come right in here, pull your chair up right beside me and you could just, you could just talk with me. You're welcome to come in. All right. Leviticus chapter two. One through six. When anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord, his offering must consist of fine flour. He's to pour olive oil on it, put frankincense on it, bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest will take a handful of flour and oil together with all the frankincense and burn this as and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering made by fire, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The remainder of the grain offering shall belong to Aaron and to his sons, and it's most holy part of the offering made by fire to the Lord. Now, if you bring an offering of grain baked in an oven, it must consist of fine flour either unleavened cakes mixed with oil or unleavened wafers coated with oil. If your offering is a grain offering prepared on a griddle, it must be unleavened bread made of fine flour filled with mixed oil. All right. It must be unleavened bread made of fine flour mixed with oil. Crumble it and pour it, pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it must consist of fine flour with oil. When you bring to the Lord, the grain offering made in any of these ways, it is to be presented to the priest and he should take it to the altar. The priest is to remove the memorial portion from the grain offering and burn it on the altar as an offering made by fire, pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the remainder of the grain offering shall belong to Aaron and his sons. It's the most holy part of the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Because again, as always, I just try to remind people to where holy just means set apart. And at the same time, all we're reading about is people bringing baked bread of some capacity. Right, some sort of grain offering would usually refer to baking bread and bringing it forward. So what they're going to do, they're going to receive that loaf of bread. I don't know if it's in a loaf shape. Let's not get too detailed about it. The point is, they're going to receive that cooked piece of bread, and they're going to take a portion of it, give it to the Father, and the rest of the portion goes to the priests. We're literally just breaking bread and sharing a meal with the Father at this point. Okay, it's called a grain offering. It's very simple. Verse 11, no grain offering that you present to the Lord may be made with leaven for you not to burn any leaven or honey as an offering made by fire to the Lord. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of first fruits, but they're not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. So then what would happen with all the first fruits that are brought to the Lord, but not offered on the altar? They would go into the storehouse of the temple, the storehouse of the sanctuary. They go into the excess resources of the priesthood. For what purpose? We're going to, this is actually going to, we're not going to really get to, Get to the details of this until much later. I'm just kind of prefacing, right? Because we see it layered all throughout his Torah, this idea of a pure and undefiled religion that James 127 or 129 speaks of. A pure and undefiled religion. The priesthood would receive excess money and food, resources, animals even. And they would use those resources to help the widow, the orphan, or those in need, the poor. What we're reading about, what we just read about, guys, this idea of bringing first fruits. And, but if you bring certain items that are not to be put on the altar, well, you still should bring them. But they're going to be goad and be re, and put into the storehouse to be redistributed for people that need, that have needs. So that way, everyone in society is taken care of. The poor, the widow, the orphan. If you're not one of those classes, that means you have a family that's intact. And, and those people should be working, right? This is the, the idea that. Paul refers to, you know, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. So this idea that if if you're in society, you're working, and usually you have family members that you're with in some capacity. So therefore, you can help each other out. You can work together to overcome your daily needs, rise above, you know, get a, get past that initial struggle in life and get to the point of actually having excess, putting savings forward, bring your first fruits, get to the place of, you know, 
blessing others, you're blessed to be a blessing, right? So you can help others as well. But if you're not in that situation because bad things happened or misfortune or war, calamity or whatever, and you're suddenly a widow or an orphan or you're just poor, well, there was a system in place to help you get back on your feet or to help you be sustained. And it was done through the father's ministry and servants as priests, specifically through the tabernacle. It was the allocation of resources and funds. And we're reading about that right here in Leviticus chapter two being preferenced. Verse 12, excuse me, verse 13. You shall season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not add uh, leaven. Excuse me, that's a typo. You must not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offering. You are to add salt to each of your offerings. So this is another quick thing I just want to make mention of. Everyone seems to make a huge deal about salts and salts of the covenant. They, I mean, I've I actually talked to a, a sweet, sweethearted gentleman. He was older, um, and he was literally had almost built his entire ministry on the covenants of salt. And that's all he talked about and had nothing to do with Torah. It was all subjective interpretation. It was all made up with subjective prophecy. And it, you know, may the father continue to grow folks like that. But it's like, bro, the father just wants you to season your food. I mean, the priests were just seasoning their food with salt. Like there's, I mean, there was, there's the, the terminology to say, we'll make a covenant of blood or a covenant of salt, right? Hebrews 13 talks about the eternal blood of the covenant. Well, we don't, we don't literally use Jesus's blood. Jesus, we're reading about Jesus's job duties as a high priest. His blood was referred to being spotless and sinless like these animals that were required to be bring forward because Jesus was sinless. So therefore his blood is pure, right? That's the analogy. That's the metaphor that's being played upon because the writer of Hebrews expects you to understand the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews is writing to people who've read the law and the prophets. So this is why, you know, it's like it, we can come around and we can say, oh man, we're making this amazing covenant of salt with this or that. And I, I sprinkled salt on, on my dog and made a covenant of salt with him and that he should live till he's 20 years of dog age. And, and you're like, wait a minute, bro. That's not how that word is introduced. That's not how those terms are used. That's not how the, the father describes any of those things in scripture. So, Let's just keep it with what it says. Don't make up your own traditions and rituals. Let's just keep what the word says and let's keep it simple. The father's just having a cookout with some, with people with the right heart that love him. And he wants you to season your food. So it tastes good. Like it's so simple guys. Don't, don't let men overcomplicate his word. All right. Leviticus 2, 14 through 16. If you bring a grain offering of fur fruits to the Lord, you shall offer crushed heads of new grain roasted on the fire. And you are to put oil and frankincense on it, and it is a grain offering. Sounds tasty. The priest shall then burn the memorial portion of the crushed grain and oil together with all of its frankincense as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Sounds good. If there's any water mixed in that, it was all, I don't know how much oil we put in, but um, I mean, we're, we almost got some. I mean, I'm not really a cook, but is that like making oatmeal? I mean, anyway, you know, it's probably not Uncle Ben's, but the point is it's it sounds tasty to me. All right, guys, you're welcome to call in at this time. The link's streaming at the bottom of the of the of the screen. If you have any questions or commentary about chapter two of Leviticus, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump into the companion passages uh, that I feel we want to consider while we're reading something like Leviticus chapter two talking about grain offerings, bringing grain offerings before the Lord. So in Isaiah chapter 66, 
we have a unique passage in 18 through 21 where it says, And I, knowing their deeds and thoughts, am coming together all nations and tongues. This is speaking about the second coming of the Messiah. This is a beautiful time, the day of the Lord. It says, They will come and see my glory. And I will establish a sign among them, and I will send survivors from among them to the nations, to Tarshish, to Put, and the archers of Lud, to Jubal, excuse me, to Tubal, Javan, and the islands far away, who have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. So they will proclaim my glory among the nations. And they will bring all of your brothers from all the nations as a gift to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons, on mules and camels, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem. Says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring an offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and I will select some of them as priests and Levites, says the Lord. So guys, real quick, verse 20 is doing what's called an assimile. It's a, it's a comparison, right? So it's saying the, the brothers from the survivors of the nations, once the, the Messiah comes back, takes the wicked out, and then New Jerusalem, shortly after, the New Jerusalem sits down on the earth. Now uh, Yeshua is sitting on the throne of his father inside the New Jerusalem, ruling, okay? He's then going to send some of the survivors that are on the outskirts of the city of the New Jerusalem. He's going to send some of them out to the rest of the world and say, hey, come back. You need to come back to the Father. He's, you know, come see his glory. Okay. They're they're required to come back for, for two reasons. One is for literal sustenance so they can survive. Um, this is why they're being called survivors, because the world is in shambles. So they need food, fresh water, they need substance. That's what the, uh, the uh, Yeshua's kingdom in the New Jerusalem is going to have free food and water for them. And then secondly, they're going to have to come back for judgment for the Matthew 25 sheep and goats judgment. So this is this is a huge deal, right? This is a big, big concept. So in this moment here in Isaiah 66, prophesying this event, speaking, looking into the, in the vision of the future to see this event happening, Isaiah is comparing the bringing of all the other people by the survivors to the house of the Lord as bringing an offering in a clean vessel, which is what we just read about with grain offerings. So you'd want to bring the grain offering in an actual clean vessel when you bring it up to the Father, otherwise you've tainted the actual offering that you brought to him. You don't want to bring a pan that has, you know, someone that that's you know been un, unclean according to different instructions in Leviticus that we'll read about in a couple of weeks. You don't want to bring that to your food to the Father on that, right? So you want to bring it in a clean vessel, usually an earthenware earthenware vessel of some sort that they would put their food in to bring it forward. So this is why they had to make sure no unclean thing would touch that earthenware vessel. And this is a very similar analogy that, that that Isaiah is depicting about these survivors being brought to the Lord as an offering. It's kind of a beautiful little moment here. Um, we have someone trying to call in, but uh, I don't know if it's going to allow me to. It's Again, you're going to have to give it permission. To Hello, you. can you hear me? Hey, I can hear you. Yes. Okay, my camera, my camera doesn't work, so I, okay. I can't use the camera. Okay. But I, I was... I think I'm asking a question related to what you're talking about. You, you okay, spoke can you hear in, me? Uh, yes, I can. Hey, what's your name, brother? My name is Omar. Omar, thanks for calling in, brother. All right, brother, oh, what's your question? You. Um, I, I think I'm related to what you're talking about, but I've heard you say before that th those who have it in their heart to keep the commandments but have not heard the gospel um, will get a second chance, in quotes. I don't know if that's the right terminology. Only, um, under the, only under the context of the Matthew 25 sheep and goats judgment moment. That's not if they've already lived their life and died. That's a totally different context. So in the context of the survivors of the nations, like we just read from Isaiah 66, 
if they survived the day of the Lord and they didn't take part in the first resurrection, then they're just still mortals and they're still survivors on the earth and they all have to come forward to be judged in the sheep and ghost judgment. Some of them will be deemed as sheep. The standard by which he deems those as sheep is based off the of Torah, whether they were already doing aspects of Torah in their life or not. Well, my question is about those who have lived their life and died. Mm -hmm. Do they get a second chance and in what context, et cetera? That whether, whether Yeshua decides to resurrect them or not, that's his choice. He's the judge. I, I don't get to make that call. Um, I know that they've lived their life and they will be judged for their and by the by Yeshua accordingly at that point. So it's a little bit different context once they've died. So if you, you were to give your opinion on the subject, um, would they possibly be resurrected during the second resurrection and then get judged accordingly? Or maybe it, it's possible. Yeah, I know there's a you know, it's it's kind of a fine line as far as with those who are deemed believers um, in some capacity, right? If they, because clearly people in the old Testament before Yeshua showed up, you know, this, we have to kind of sift through some of the language that modern church has imposed on this topic. They could say that you're a believer because you believe in Yeshua. Well, Abraham never met Yeshua. Like he, he may have visions of him at different times, but he didn't actually meet the Messiah. So he, you know, he didn't put his faith in the high priest of the Messiah that came. So, the very few people on earth actually get to meet the Messiah, right? And in a very specific little slice of time before and after that, it's all in faith, right? That the father is going to accomplish his purposes through his son, through, through what was prophesied. And they do get prophecies of the Messiah all the way back to Enoch. So it's, in my opinion, to be back to Adam. We just don't have those writings. So this is where um, they're all working in faith and belief. This is what Paul tries to express to us in Galatians 4 and other places that it's all the same faith and belief. Same thing in Hebrews 11. If someone had never heard about the Lord before Yeshua showed up and they lived and died, Yeshua will be the one to judge them. It's hard for me just to give my blanket opinion because I literally, to give my opinion on whether or not I would have to know that person, their life and their details, which at that point, I'm now trying to make a judgment call for Yeshua without even knowing the proper details. And that's two, two areas of assumption I just don't feel comfortable stepping into personally, because that's, I mean, that's his job. He, the father granted the son only to be the judge of all mankind. Only he is going to get the reports from all the angels about each person's life and all the deeds that done while in the body, right. To be judged off of. So he's going to know the circumstances of someone say that grew up in ancient India in, in like a Southern provincial region of ancient India who may have never heard about Israel uh, to the capacity of why they worship the God they do and, the, the prophecies uh, from the prophets of Israel about how the creator is the one and only creator. So they're they're in, they were grown up in inside this religious system with multiple gods trying to deal with what's asked of them in that culture and that religion compared to their basic conscience that the father has written his behavior at a substandard level on every person's conscience, their heart and, and having to deal with that at some point. So we just don't know the, all the details of history, whether those people truly made conscious decisions to do what was right and rejected evil or you know it, we just don't know this is why thankfully we have a consistent standard by which the father judges all of mankind that's why i think matthew 25 is so important to look at as far as he's using that same standard and we do get to see him we, we don't get to see him judge everybody after death okay we just we just kind of very, very briefly blankets over that in Revelation 20, this idea that all mankind is brought before him and, and they're judged for their deeds. 
we don't get to see exactly the fine line details of how a person is determined righteous or unrighteous when they die, and which compartment of Sheol they go to, to await resurrection. We don't get to see any of those, those qualifying details because all of those are recorded by the, the angels. Those are all right. details recorded and presented to the father and the son by the, by his entire huge priesthood of angels that he created on day one. That's their job to record all of mankind's deeds. So it, it really does put us at a disadvantage of trying to say, all right, well, what does that dude in India, you know, a thousand years before Yeshua living in India? What, what did he, how's he going to be judged? Like, so there has to be a consistent baseline because the circumstances in life don't put him on the same uh, opportunity as someone that may have been growing up a thousand years before Yeshua in the days of Israel, living in the kingdom of, of David. So it, it's, you know, it's one of those situations where we, we have to trust that the father's consistent standard for judgment will be carried out by the son. And thankfully we have so many verses. I just want to encourage you, Omar. We have so many verses in the scriptures that tell us that the son sits on the mercy seat. That's the throne of the father. And that he loves mercy. <laughs> this is what right. we see. We, we actually see this happening in Matthew 25. He's showing people that these people respond to him saying, when have we ever done these things to you? And he's like, oh, to the least of mine, you did them to me. You did them to the least of my brother and you did them to me. So he's, he's taken like a circumstantial acquaintance level of interaction of saying, look, if you treated, if you did these ways of Torah, and that's, a, that's what he actually lists out to those people. I don't know if you've ever seen my, my video where I break all this down. It's called Just Judgment. So you're welcome to go look that up. It's a part of our oh, Torah yeah. apologetics playlist. And okay. so that's the good news is like that's this consistent standard that the son judges people by. So if we think there's someone in the past that didn't grow up in a, a, Israel, a Hebraic society, with the prophets or they didn't grow up in a Christian society, knowing about the story of the Messiah had already came. We have to trust that the father is going to use his son faithfully to judge people by that consistent same standard of righteousness and use mercy while he does it. So right. they may be resurrected in the first resurrection. They may not be. It may, it may happen in the second resurrection. From my understanding, it seems like once you die before the first resurrection happens, You've already, you know, again, the angels have this information to, to know who's going to be go to the righteous side of Sheol and the unrighteous side. And it looks like everyone in the righteous side of Sheol gets raised in the first resurrection. Now, we're getting into the minutiae here, and that's okay, because it's a great question you're asking, okay? But we're getting into the minutiae of, of how things are judged when judgment actually happens. And this is why I think in Matthew 5, 19, verses 18 and 19, this is why Yeshua expresses the idea that those who have taught the commandments and do them will be considered great in the kingdom. Those who didn't teach the commandments and don't do them may be considered least in the kingdom. They're still in the kingdom. Both groups are still in the kingdom. But just like in Israel's kingdom that we're reading about here in Leviticus, Aaron was a part of the high priesthood. The other Levites were a part of the serving class to Aaron. So there, yes, there will be an actual Melchizedek priesthood. Will every single person that gets resurrected to eternal life, go into that Melchizedek priesthood. It seems like it's, especially the first resurrection, because that's why you need that priesthood is to minister to the people outside the New Jerusalem for a thousand years. So it seems like it, but there could be that caveat of Matthew 519, where some will be resurrected and they'll give eternal life because they exhibited them actively making a sacrifice to do what's right in their life, even though they had very limited information. Yet the father still will say, okay, well, look, you, you know, you bring you into my house and I give you eternal life because I'm merciful. And you showed a great heart 
in spite of all this deception you grew up around, but at the same time, you know, you had, these people that that pursued my law, pursued my behavior to the point of of trying to teach others to do it, they they practiced their whole life with great sacrifice and persecution to do the job that I'm going to give them in the millennial reign. So I hope that makes a little bit of sense. I unfortunately I don't have a clear cut hard answer for who gets resurrected in the first resurrection specifically and where is their placement in the kingdom? Will they all become priests? Well, some of those people that never knew about the father, but still are shown mercy and be given eternal life because they exemplify their willingness to go after truth, no matter what the circumstances were around them. Will they have to wait till the second resurrection? And if so, it's okay because Sheol, the good side of Sheol is not a bad place. It's a place guarded by angels and the spiritual presence of the Lord is there according to Psalm 139 verse seven and eight. So it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's not a, a slight against those people if they don't get resurrected and it's not a guarantee that they will. It just seems to say that everyone who dies before the, the second coming of Yeshua, before that great day of the Lord and the resurrection of the saints, seems to say that that whole group in the righteous side of Sheol does get resurrected at that time and pulled out. And if that's the case, well, then obviously that group will be, um, their actions will be apportioned according to their reward in heaven, as the scriptures tell us. So hopefully that's a, a decent, well-rounded answer for you. What yeah. are your thoughts, brother? Well, that that uh that definitely answers some curiosity I have. Um, specifically, I was thinking more like you you've talked uh, with your wife before on other videos I've seen where you know you you encourage us not to you know not to be all against Christians who have only heard dispensational type teachings and uh, believe that like say the Sabbath and the dietary laws are like no longer uh, relevant. Um, that they're still mostly following the Torah, <laughs> you know, because they don't murder, they don't commit adultery, etc. Um, but let's say they have been presented with the idea that no, no, the Torah is still relevant. But because they've been, I, for lack of a better word, brainwashed for 40 plus years, that that's crazy talk. That's not what Paul was teaching. <laughs> um, what sounds are your like you watched one of my recent videos. Yes. <laughs> what, yeah. what I've also listened to, a, I like to watch some of your debates too. So, yeah. um, but anyways, um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is, uh, you know, let's just say, because, you know, I'm hoping it's not because this particular person I'm thinking of is, is just so stubborn and, and ha doesn't have a heart to do the law to its fullness. And that's why they reject what, a, what, you know, is being presented to them by me yeah. and other people. But um, what, what I'm wondering is, you know, let's just say it's just because they've been so brainwashed into thinking that, that they just can't quite get out of that thinking. You know, would you consider them to be, you know, that verse talking about those being least in the kingdom of heaven? You know what I'm talking about? Like they, 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 they don't do all of the commandments because they don't, you know, and they teach other people you don't have to do all of them. Um, so that doesn't mean they're not getting into the kingdom, theoretically. Right. Yeah, but they just what are they just going to be like door people? <laughs> I mean, I'm making up that sure. last part. There's two there's two things in your question here. And, and uh, it's just just bear with me a minute and let me sure. let me break down the first premise inside the question, which is an assumption. And, um, and that assumption is that there is a um, there's a measure of, quote unquote, Torah that has to be filled before someone's doing Torah. That's actually why in the opening of this tour apologetics, I, I specifically put together the, you know, with the, with Ken's song that plays, I put together the, the words on the screen for those two minutes that actually kind of break down this idea that 
it's it's a what you're doing is whether you realize it or not you're coming from a cultural standpoint of what we've been told from judaism passed over to catholicism and protestant christianity that torah is a category unto itself that has a start and a finish as far as a specific measure of something that has to be done to a completion before it's considered to be done because that because ultimately what you're describing and this is the second part this what you're describing is your friend you and me are in the same category that you're describing for your friend from this misaligned understanding of what tor is tor is right. doing the instructions of the father so at some point in your life before you came to the awareness that there were more instructions that were relevant to you you were in the position of your friend just like i was before right. I, I was a believer for many years thought the sabbath was fulfilled every day in jesus right had no clue how to practically apply that and didn't know what that really meant but that's what I was told. And that's what I was trying to, you know, you know, be a good little Christian and figure out, okay, well, yeah, that is cool. I just rest in Jesus every day. That sounds great. Right. So I had no right. clue what I was doing. I had bad instruction. I did not have good instruction from the Torah. So the Torah is not just like a, a specific amount of things that you got to do. And if you don't do them all, you haven't done Torah. And if you're just doing one, you haven't done. No, that's, that's not Torah. It's just, it's just the word just means instructions. So therefore, we're just doing the instructions. Like I was just doing the instructions that I understood as a part of, you know, at that point in my discipleship until I learned more. And then there was an intermediary time, Omar, I'll be honest with you, where I bucked. It was, it was probably 2013, 2014. I was just coming into this idea of, oh, wow, all this stuff's relevant to us. I mean, I'd been studying all of it because I, I thought understanding the Old Testament helped me better understand Jesus, right? That's what I was right. taught in church. So then when I started to realize everything I've been reading about in the Old Testament is actually applicable to me, or at least the things that apply to me, like I, at least for whatever reason, the father gave me that understanding right off the bat of just like, well, of course, things that speak specifically to, to women don't apply to you. Right. Like it's just right. kind of common sense. But some people don't don't think that far into it. Right. They just think, oh, there's no way I can keep all of it. You know, and I'm like, well, you're not expected to keep all of it. Not all of it applies right, right. to you. So at that point, I bucked a little bit. So I would just say, and look and look at me now, right? So I would just say, be patient with your friend. Keep praying for them, right? The sower sows the word. Pray that the father waters it. He's the one who reaps where he did not sow. So he can he can do anything in the hearts of believers and unbelievers. Just be patient with them and let them know that, you know, you're there to answer any questions that they may ever have or whatever, you know. Um, send them any information or videos that you come across that you think are helpful and the topics you're struggling with or whatever. But ultimately... There, there may be some moments in everyone's discipleship where people have not heard that piece of information that that causes those instructions that they're bucking against. It causes them to make sense to them yet. So therefore, they don't think it's pertinent to them because they think that they're this is unfortunately this is um, may have been what you saw in, a, in a, like one of the debates. It wasn't supposed to be a debate. One of the discussions that turned into a debate that I did like a week and a half ago with a pastor where you kept hearing the conversation go, oh, no, I'm not saying I'm against the law. I'm saying Jesus raised the standard. We should do more. But then right, right. when you ask the person, okay, but are you doing the initial standard before you do the more? He's like, I don't have to do that. See, there's a double-mindedness there, right? Mm -hmm. There's there's an incongruity in the logic and the process because that's taught in churches. And that's because that's taught in seminary. We, You know, you heard it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, in that, in that interview. So that's where that type of teaching causes them to think that they're doing more than the base standard of, of righteous behavior, which is what Yeshua did, because they think Yeshua raised the bar when he was really just saying that the Pharisees aren't teaching you the Torah properly. I'm teaching, I want to teach you the Torah properly. 
So that's where they've taken this myth because they don't know the Torah. They don't understand what why Yeshua is talking to the Pharisees the way he is. So therefore, they think, oh, well, we need to do a higher standard than the Torah, which inherently implies the initial standard of the Torah is somehow inferior. But that's not at all what Yeshua was saying. That's not at all what the Law and the Prophets explain, nor the New Testament. It's a misunderstanding. It's bad teaching. So just be patient with your friend. I was a part of bad teaching in, in my earlier in my walk for over a decade, right? For a long time in my walk for uh, 15 years. Right? right. And I thought, I mean, so here's the big question, Omar, what would have happened to me if I died between the time that I, I first came into the knowledge that there's more that applies to me, but yet I wasn't willing to do it yet. Right. Would I have, did I somehow lose my salvation at that point? Or am I just a, <laughs> a human that's still in discipleship that the father has to be patient with. So I used to take martial arts for a long time. I was, uh, you know, in different capacities, I would teach martial arts uh, at different um, studios. And so I actually taught a self-defense class at one point just for women. And, you know, you have students, you have people that they, they, you're trying to teach them fundamental techniques. Some of them, they pick up really fast and others, they do not pick up really fast. And right. you have to be patient with them and be like, all right, well, let's keep practicing on this. And until it really clicks with them, why they need to do that, they have no internal motivation to get it right. So that's my experience. That's my perspective. And I would just say, you know, those, you know, let, try not to approach it with that initial premise of because that type of language, what you described in your question, if I was your friend hearing that type of language, that would immediately put me into the mindset of what the church teaches, which is that, oh, well, you fell in one part of the Torah, you fell in all of it. Why, why would you even keep it? Because I'm being expressed to me that the Torah is a set standard of, of you know, 10 things I must do. And if I don't do one of those 10 things right, then I failed in all 10 of them. And that's not what the scriptures teaches. Gotcha. Um, you know what I'm saying? So like, I hopefully, <clears throat> hopefully, you know, it's a longer answer, but um, I'm, I'm trying to be as thorough as possible for you. Hopefully that's a help to you, brother. Oh, no, I appreciate it. The longer answers. <laughs> yeah. um, and and then uh, this is uh, more related to the sacrifices. Uh, different question. Okay. While I'm here. Uh, now that Yeshua, like in Hebrews uh, 8, is it where it says he's still giving offerings and gifts? Um, yeah. Yeah. So now does that I, I know in a lot of your discussions slash debates, <laughs> you you mentioned, um, you know, that. uh you know, because there's more than just the atonement sacrifice. So does he not do the the sin sacrifices anymore because his his sacrifice on the cross covered that? Or up in heaven, is he doing all of the sacrifices, including the sin sacrifices? How, how to, am I asking that right? I mean, do you understand uh, what I'm saying? I do understand what you're saying and lovingly know you're not asking it right. So let me ask you a fun question. Okay. <laughs> if, you, if Yeshua was... It, okay, where I mean, we're about to start. We're about to read the rest of these chapters that go over the sacrifices. Oh, okay. None of these none of these chapters here tell us that God accepts any kind of atonement for a guy dying on a piece of wood. Okay, all right. The New Testament speaks of Yeshua's selfless sacrifice of his of his life, being allowing him to be slandered and prosecuted un unjustly to be murdered on a cross. On a, on a, you know, betrayed by his own people, the New Testament writers refer to that event as sacrifice. But that's not the literal 
description of sacrifice we're reading here in the Torah and in, in the, in the, in the law of the prophets, whereas you would bring an animal forward by a priest. So Yeshua's selfless sacrifice, you remember what he says, no one takes his life, he lays it down willingly, right? Right. He allowed himself to be apprehended by the Roman guards in the Garden of Gethsemane. He allowed himself to go to the cross, to be spit, beat, abused, crown of thorns, whipped, put on the cross. He allowed that to happen. It was a selfless sacrifice. Hebrews 5, 6 through 10 reviews this idea that he learned obedience through suffering and that he did that intentionally so that because he didn't have to go through that, but that was what was ordained. That was what was prophesied that that what that would be what would happen to the Messiah. But that's not the end of the story him being resurrected and getting to this priesthood in heaven is the end of the story. That's the part that we needed to get to. Well, I, I said that poorly. That's not the end of the story. Obviously he's got to come back and create peace on the earth and everything. But the point is like that was, there's more to the story than just the cross, the cross itself. That whole process is an instrument of death devised by the nations. That's not an instrument of atonement instructed by the father. So what we're okay. reading about are instruments of atonement instructed by the Father, these, these priests making meals before the Father with animals, not with humans. The Father does not accept human blood in his altars. Right, right, all right. That, all that language is just the New Testament writers trying to use Old Testament priestly terms as they talk about their high priest Messiah and explain his selflessness and his obedience to the Father to go through a horrific death to be raised to life by the power of the spirit and then given this priesthood to minister on our behalf in heaven. So that's a, it, again, it requires knowing that old Testament in order before we start to realize, all right, so Hebrews eight, one through five tells me that there's a temple in heaven. And then our priest who's only a priest in that heavenly temple would not be a priest on the earth is bringing sacrifices and gifts, just like the ones on the earth are required to do. Because why? Because God instructed Moses on Mount Sinai. And this is what Hebrews eight, five references when it says because the tabernacle on the ground was a copy and shadow of the one made in the heavens meaning everything that takes place in this tabernacle we're reading about in leviticus is taking place in heaven <laughs> and i've actually okay, got some okay. companion yeah i've got some companion passages actually that are going to go over the that exact com uh, concept i think in chapter four so yeah just, okay. just i think this. i think what it was is i misunderstood a response you gave to one of the persons you were having a discussion with or debate, whatever it was. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyways, okay. So he's it, he, the, his sinless life and his death um, was basically so that he earned the position of the high priest as under the Mel Melchizedek, uh, whatever <laughs> priesthood, excuse me. Um, and that was, that was all that was that uh, now that he's earned that position, He's been resurrected uh, right. into the new the the uh, new body, and right. now he can be before the throne or before uh, the mercy seat in heaven, and in the presence of Yah without dying, obviously. And then now he does all of the things that the priest in the Levitical order did, but he does it now for us up in heaven. Right. It's the same instructions. It's the same okay. Torah. This is why we've we in previous passages or excuse me previous videos we've tried to explain how. Even in Jubilees chapter six, like even if you don't understand the language that's presented to us in Exodus 25 to 27, where it says Moses was building a replica of a temple in heaven. 
meaning everything right. that's going to go on in that temple down here is the same thing going up there. And even if, if that's not enough for you, and even if, you know, all the prophetic passages like I just read in Isaiah 66 or in Zechariah 14 or in Ezekiel uh, 40, 40 through 47, or, you know, all these different places where it says sacrifices will be done in the kingdom of heaven when it comes down called Zion. Right. Even if all those don't click for you, Jubilees chapter six directly tells us, that Shavuot, which is a feast where sacrifices are brought to the Father, has been kept since day one in heaven by the angels and God of God. So that's that's a huge deal. Like that's a feast of God. That's a part of the, the instructions of the Father for one of these feast days. On one of those feast days, sacrifices are brought. Meals are made for the Father because it's a feast. What are we talking about right here? We're talking about feasts. These are meals right. being made to the Father. So this is why on feast days, they also do sacrificial atonement meals. Um, and this is going on in heaven, and I'm actually going to read a verse about that here in a minute from the Testament of Levi. Okay, okay. So so yeah. basically, just to kind of uh, make it generic, the, the Torah is eternal both directions. <laughs> all, yeah, all the, of the yeah eternal, eternal is eternal. Yeah, you're right. And, and uh, the only reason why we see any place in the scriptures where they're not doing all of the Torah is pre-Mount Sinai, because Abba has just not given that instruction partly for the sake of you know like so adam and eve's kids weren't violating the torah when they had uh when they married their sisters or brothers or something like that you know or like when uh right. levi slept with his uh father's concubine he wasn't reuben. killed yeah reuben yeah oh excuse me reuben sorry <laughs> yeah you're right you're right so that it actually explains that in jubilees 33 um, oh, okay. where it talks about the angels explaining to Moses that this is why Reuben wasn't killed was because we didn't give that instruction to mankind yet. And so therefore I, you're like, oh, well, that's interesting. So this is why we've said in the past that there are, uh, again, we're talking about, you know, when we, when we try to parcel through the idea of what Torah is and whether or not it's the fullness thereof or whether it is the instructions given to God, to mankind at that time. Now, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, one of their big instructions was don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did they have all the same instructions about how to do all these priestly duties that we see as far as tearing down the tabernacle and putting the poles through certain rings and how they're supposed to carry it? You know, that no, because that was not applicable to them. They weren't, in, they weren't asked to build a, a mobile tabernacle. You know what I'm saying? They already had one inside the garden of Eden. It's the kingdom of the garden. I've done an entire episode on that videos on that. Um, it's, it's in also in Jubilees chapter three, where it talks about Adam burning incense on the altar. The day he's asked to leave the garden, like he was taught priestly duties. He was also taught toward to some degree and Jubilees. I think it's uh three, three, nine or three, 10. It says the angels, um, the angel that's narrating Jubilees tells Moses, Oh, we taught Adam how to put aside residue and how to tend to the garden and keep the animals away and, and all the duties that he should know and do. Well, putting aside residue is something we just referenced here in Leviticus chapter two, when it talks about first fruits. Okay. You see what I'm saying? So like yeah, yeah. there, there's a, there is a ton of the father's instructions for righteous living that's given to mankind before we get to this Mount Sinai moment where he gives them a repeat of righteous living, plus all these specific instructions for this mobile tabernacle with the priesthood that would interact inside of it. So there's a lot more specific different types of instructions given here, but it doesn't change the game in any way, right? It's still gotcha. the father's behavior being kept in heaven. He's just revealing more of it to mankind and asking these people specifically, all right, I want you guys to, to do a full stage play of everything I do up here. I want you to practice it on the earth. 
Okay, okay. So that's okay, right. why Jacob and... married two sisters without violating the Torah because he hadn't been given that particular instruction, but they had been given many instructions that were the same. Who did you say? Did you say Jacob? Jacob, yeah. Jacob, I, I want to answer this real quick. I, Kyle's trying to ask a question real quick, oh, yeah, and yeah, I sure. got to get back to the portion, okay? I really, right. really appreciate all the questions, okay? This will be the last one I can get to right now. I understand. Yes and no. Jacob's circumstance is a little bit different. He was tricked into marrying two people. He didn't willfully try to go out and find two wives. So there's a caveat in Torah for, um, uh, I mean, if, obviously, if you have two wives, you're supposed to treat them fairly, equally, love them both. You're not supposed to show favoritism one to the other. And right. you have the option to marry a second woman if your brother's your brother dies and your, and your sister-in-law is now a widow and you want to take care of that family and provide seed for them. So you have the option to do that. But as far as the man being, being having just the free will to go out, choose a whole bunch of women to marry, that is never instructed in Torah. And it's actually uh, and, and through lots of different passages. I don't have time to go into right now. I'm giving you a very short answer. That is right. discouraged. That kind of behavior is discouraged. It should be one man, one woman. So I really appreciate your questions, Omar. I'm going to take Kyle's question real quick. And uh, Kyle, right. can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me? I can barely hear you, brother. You may have to get closer to the mic or turn up your volumes. Yep. How about now? No, that's a lot better. Okay. I can hear you. What's yeah, up, brother? What's your closer. question? So um, Acts 21, 26, Paul taking offerings. Uh, what was the deal there? That was post-ascension. Uh, so, again, what's the deal there? And a, a side question to that is, and I think I already know your answer here, but um, if there was a temple today that was rebuilt today, uh, with the hands of men, would we be offering at that? Okay, so Acts 21, 26, Paul's not, you mean Paul is asked by the other disciples to to uh, do a, a vow and pay for the offerings for himself and for four other dudes, right? Oh, I was under the impression that Paul gave an offering himself. Yes, for himself. Yeah, he was he was required to go do a vow, which includes him bringing forth an offering from number six vow offerings. And then the disciples asked him to take care of the expenses for four other men who also were going to do that same vow and which required them to bring an offering to the active priesthood at the temple. And there was a cost, obviously, because the offering you brought forward, that animal cost, you have to pay, you either own it or buy it from somebody to bring that forward. So, yes, he, he's asked to cover the costs of the, of the sacrifice and go specifically do this type of vow offering uh, by the other disciples in Jerusalem to prove that he does teach and keep Torah, which I think is fascinating. Uh, he was dealing with slanderous accusations even 2,000 years ago. So, yes, that's that's what he's doing. There's an active temple at that time. This is after Yeshua resurrected. The, the temple hasn't been destroyed yet because the time of prophecy hadn't come yet for the temple to be destroyed. Because as Hebrews 8, 1 through 5 explains to us, the Levites on the earth have been appointed the priesthood on the earth. Yeshua ascended, Hebrews 4.14, as high priest through the heavens to the temple in heaven above to minister in a tabernacle in heaven that was not built by the hands of man, as Hebrews 8 explains, nor also in Hebrews 11, but it's built by the hands of God, right? This is a temple that's always been there. It's been the one in heaven. Because why? The this is the Father's behavior that he's been doing since creation began. And I'm going to go over a passage here in just a minute where the angels in heaven are a part of a priesthood that do sacrifices to the Father in heaven above. And it specifically says in verse 10, and mankind doesn't realize this on the earth. So okay. in the days of Yeshua, verse? yeah, in the, in the days of Yeshua, 
He dies, is resurrected. He's a he's got a new glorified body. He's not of the Levitical priesthood, so he's not qualified to be of the priesthood on the earth. He has to ascend into this Melchizedek style priesthood, which has different requirements, so that he can be a part of a priesthood in heaven. And as Hebrews 1 explains, he now has the name and authority of this priesthood that's even over the angels, because they're also in a priesthood, as verse 14 of that same chapter explains. So they're in a priesthood. Mankind on the earth is in a priesthood. Yeshua went to a position above all of it. He's the high priest over all of the priesthoods, right? Because they're all just servants. He's king of kings, lord of lords. He's the high priest, a ruler over all of mankind. He's the Elohim status of ruler of all things, uh, mighty God, mighty ruler. Um, he's the son of God, but he's also in a position of being, you know, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, right? So that's why he's referred to as a king and a high priest at the same time. So as a result of this, he's ministering in a tabernacle, not on the earth. That's why Hebrews 8, verse 4 and 5 says that if he were on the earth, he wouldn't even be a priest because that's not where his priesthood was given to him. His priesthood was given to him in this position in this tabernacle in heaven that was built by God. So it's a totally different context, right? And this is why we have to understand the biblical creation model, what the Bible describes, where these things take place. Otherwise, we they don't seem real. They don't seem tangible or, or um, they don't seem... Um, it's hard for us to grasp what it's saying if we try to put all this outside of the description where the Father said all this takes place. So if the temple was rebuilt today and we were able to gather up some Levites and and bring them there. Does that's, does the scripture say that's what's going to happen? What does the scripture say is going to happen when a new temple is on the earth? I know about Mount the Mount Zion whenever when that comes, but I don't right. know about the 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 third temple that the Jews are wanting to build today. Right. If that's yeah, that's I don't know if that's going to get done or not. Well, regardless if it gets done, that's not prophesied in the Word. So just like the temple that was destroyed in AD seventy, that was prophesied. Just like the first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed in the seventh in the sixth century BC, that was prophesied. The Father's told us every step of the way when he actually is going to have his his seat of authority on the earth and have a temple on the earth. He told us what it's going to be, that he's going to fill it, and when it's going to be destroyed. And the only other temple at this point in history, the only other temple that he said is going to come down is the one that's described in Ezekiel that also is inside the New Jerusalem. When that comes down, it's not going to be built by Kabbalist Zionists in Israel today who reject the sun, right? Because the sun is the high priest uh, ministering the covenant over us and, and in the temple of heaven that's going to literally come down to the earth. So that's the only other one that's prophesied to us to come down. So if someone to try to build a temple today and they claim they found some Levites to work it today, that doesn't that doesn't impress me. That doesn't require me to go do um, sacrifices over there because though that temple has not been or has not been prophesied and it promise you it will not be ordained by the Father. Those Levites have not been have the only other time I just read the passage actually in Isaiah 66, 18 through 21. That's the only other time when new Levites will be chosen for an earthly temple is when the Yeshua returns and all the nations are brought to the new Jerusalem. So we have all that context to keep us from falling into the deceptions of man, right? It's the father told us when he's going to build his temples, when they're going to be destroyed, and when there's going to be an eternal, everlasting one set down on the earth that will never be destroyed. So that's we're in the moment of history and time and prophecy waiting for that last one, Zion, the new Jerusalem to sit down. And so does that answer your question, brother? 
Yeah, it causes me to have more, but I don't want to sidetrack from the yeah. Parsha. So, uh, yeah, continue on. I'll chew on that, and um, maybe I can ask some more at the end of the show. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Kyle. All right, thanks. Okay, guys, let's, um, let's get here to Chapter 3 real quick. Thanks for calling in, guys. I also want to say thank you to Chile Gonzalez. Uh, he dropped a super chat earlier. I uh, really appreciate you, brother. That's a blessing. I appreciate you. Um, all right, guys. Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. If one's offering is a peace offering, he offers an animal from the herd, whether male or female. He must present it without blemish before the Lord. He's to lay his hand on the head of the offering and slaughter at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood on, on all sides of the altar. From the peace offering, he's to make an offering by uh, excuse me an offering made by fire to the lord the fat that covers the entrails all the fat that's on them both the kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the lobe of the liver which he is to remove with the kidneys excuse me then aaron's sons are to be are to burn it on the altar atop the burnt offering that is on the burning wood as an offering made by fire a pleasing aroma to the lord if however one's peace offering to the lord is from the flock he must present a male or female without blemish if he is presenting a lamb for his offering he must present it before the lord he is to lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it in the front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons shall sprinkle its blood on all sides of the altar. And from the peace offering, he shall bring an offering made by fire to the Lord, consisting of, of its fat, the entire fat tail cut off close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails. Um, so here, um, All the fat that is on them, both the kidneys with the fat that is on them, near the loins, the lobe of the liver, which he is to remove with the kidneys. Then the priest is to burn them on the altar as food. That's interesting, right? Burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire to the Lord. If one's offering is a goat, he is to present it to the, before the Lord. He must lay his hand on his head and slaughter it in front of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons shall sprinkle its blood on all sides of the altar. And from his offering, he shall present an offering made by fire to the Lord, the fat that covers the entrails, all the fat that's on them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which is he is to remove with the kidneys, then the priest is to burn the food and on the altar as an offering made by fire, a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. This is a permanent statute for the generations to come. Wherever you live, you must not eat fat. You must not eat any fat or any blood. So just as a quick, uh, just to point out here, how many times in here have we read already where it says these are a pleasing aroma to the Lord? So there's a lot of people that want to say, oh, sacrifices are bad, right? Why would he, as he's describing the sacrifices, he says they're pleasing aroma. Like it's just in the passages. It's just in the words. We just got to study them, get familiar with them, take them seriously. And it's, I mean, it's all right here. Um, Leviticus chapter four. I didn't have, uh, I didn't have any companion passages for chapter three real quick. Cause we're going to go right into chapter four real quick. If I can get this to work for me. All right, guys, one second. All right. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to do as follows with one who sins unintentionally against any of the Lord's commandments and does what is forbidden by them. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without blemish as the sin offering for the sin he's committed. He must bring the bull to the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, slaughter it before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it into the tent of meeting. The priest is to dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest must then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, the fragrant incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. He is to pour out the rest of the blood's bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then he shall remove all the fat from the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that's on it, both the kidneys with the fat near the loins and the lobe of the liver, which he is to remove with the kidneys, just as the fat is removed from the ox of the peace offering. 
Then the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh with its head and legs and the entrails and dung, all the rest of the bull he must take outside the camp to a ceremonial clean place where the ashes are poured out, and there he must burn it on wood, fire on the ash heap. Now if the whole congregation of Israel strays unintentionally, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly so that they violate any of the Lord's commandments and incur guilt by doing what is forbidden, when they become aware of the sin they've committed, they've, then the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering, present it before the tent of meeting, the elders of the congregation are to lay their hands on the bull's head before the Lord, and it shall be slaughtered before the Lord. Then the anointed priest is to bring some of the bull's blood into the tent of meeting. He is to dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. He is also to put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. He must pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to remove all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. He shall offer this blood, excuse, he shall offer this bull just as he did the bull for the sin offering. And in this way, the priest will make atonement on their behalf. They will be forgiven. Then he's to take the bull outside the camp and burn it. Just as he burned the first bull, it is the sin offering for the assembly. When the leader sins unintentionally and does what is prohibited by any of the commandments of the Lord his God, he incurs guilt. When he becomes aware of the sin he has committed, he must bring an unblemished male goat as his offering. He is to lay his hand on the head of the goat and slaughter it at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered before the Lord. It's a sin offering. Then the priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour it out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. He must burn all its fat on the altar, like the fat of the peace offering. Thus the priest will make atonement for that man's sin, and he will be forgiven. And if one of the common people sins unintentionally and does what is prohibited by any of the Lord's commandments, he incurs guilt. When he becomes aware of his sin, he is committed, he must bring an unblemished female goat as his offering for that sin. He is to lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest is to take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. Then he is to remove all the flat, all the fat, just as it's removed from the peace offering, and the priest is to burn it on the altar as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him and he will be forgiven. If, however, he brings a lamb as a sin offering, he must bring an unblemished lamb. He is to lay his hand on the head of the sin offering, slaughtered as a sin offering at the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered. Then the priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, poured out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar, and he shall remove all the fat just as the fat of the lamb is removed from the peace offerings. He shall burn it on the altar all along with the, fire, the offerings made by fire to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him for the sin he has committed, and he will be forgiven. So there's a couple of things I just want to point out. We've seen a couple times, guys, multiple times in these last four chapters where it talks about them pouring out the blood along on the ground, basically. There's different circumstances for like whether they're um, which altar they're nearby or, or which animal they're using. But ultimately, uh, whether or not they have to take a little bit of the blood and put it on the horns of the altar or sprinkle it in front of the veil, that's not what I'm referencing. What I'm referencing is the rest of the entire amount of the of the animal's blood they pour out somewhere else okay before they cut it up trim the fat and put it, the meat on the altar the father does not accept blood on his altars there's a difference here right there's a, there's an idea of like obviously they put the blood on the horns of the altar you know and i apologize i don't have a picture of the actual altar itself but that's not the cooking surface it was a totally different thing that's not the cooking surface what is what is gold um the horns of the altar be made of gold and the blood be put on it by a, a spotless animal. I don't know the physics of that. I don't know the, the purpose of that. I mean, I know a lot of tons of people that talk about the sim, symbolism of that, right? You know, the, the horn of uh, the father is the Messiah. Um, his sinless blood, 
his his perfect obedience is what allowed him to make atonement for us by getting to his priesthood so he can make atonement and then resurrect us uh, to create salvation for us in a general term. So there's tons of symbolism there. But as far as like why literally put it on the altar there, but not on the cooking surface? Well, that's because the father doesn't accept blood on his altars. He doesn't accept. He doesn't want blood. He doesn't want to eat blood. So even if he's not there, even if there's a meal being made to him in memorial that's being offered to him on the as, as an ascent offering, as a burnt offering, he still doesn't want blood in it because he abides by his own behavior. He doesn't eat anything with blood in it. He abides by his own behavior, right? There's a process for how you would do this, right? When you were to prepare an animal to eat. So just keep that in mind because we're going to read in a companion passage about how the angels do sacrifices heaven with bloodless offerings because they keep the same Torah. All right, guys. That's my Levi. I'm going to read this. You guys can call in if you want to. I'm going to go ahead and start reading this. Testament of Levi, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Let me get a quick drink. Here, therefore, regarding the heavens which have been shown to you. All right, so this is a, this is a vision that Levi is having. And he is being given a tour of different layers of heaven, kind of like Enoch was. Okay, so this is in the Testament 12 Patriarchs, specifically the Testament of Levi. This is a companion passage that was found uh, both in Aramaic and in ancient Hebrew. It's also found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and so there's there's a lot of textual history to this. This is this is one of the ancient works of ancient Israel that they used to read. Um, it says, Here, therefore, regarding the heavens, which has been shown to you, the lowest, what is that? The heavens, the plural, the heavens that have been shown to you. Now he's going to describe the lowest one right? Because there's multiple layers of firmament that's created on day one. The day two firmament is the one that encapsulates us specifically at the bottom of these multiple layers. But all the other layers above the one made on day two was made on day one. And we've, we've talked about that in other videos. I don't have time to express it too much right now, but this gives us a quick glimpse of some of the things happening on those other layers above the layer over our heads. The lowest layer of heaven is for this cause gloomy to you, because it holds all the unrighteous deeds of men. And it has fire, snow, and ice made ready for the day of judgment in the righteous judgment of God. For in it are all the spirits of retributions for vengeance on men. So that army that comes back with Yeshua on Matthew 24, 29 through 31 and other places, the Joel 2 army, those angels, that warrior class of angels that are coming back to fight with him, that's the ones that we're reading about right here. Verse three, and in the second, the second layer of the firmament above the above the lowest layer are the hosts of the armies which are ordained. I'm sorry, I, I said that wrong. That has fire, ice made ready for the day of judgment, the righteous judgment of God for in it are all the spirits of retribution for the vengeance of men. Then he goes on to explain the army of actual angels that are going to be coming back with Yeshua. The other ones are the ones that actually will be throwing the actual big stones of, of, of fire, hail and ice down from heaven during the the seal trumpet and bowl judgments um this is actually something that we read about in uh, i think it's I, i'm going blank i think it's job 22 or it's job 38 22 where it talks about the storehouses of of uh, hail and snow for the day of judgment of the lord so this is so essentially they're not like automated to have these massive things of hail and ice and fire that will be dropping during these events that we see in Revelation. They're not just set up on these automated little um, 
containers that just drop them at appropriate times, right? There's literal spirits, that's angel, angels, that's a reference to spirits. There's little spirits up there that are ready to throw them at their appointed time. They're ready to, to release them. And they're going to throw them in certain directions on certain nations, um, according to the, the judgment of the Father. So that's that's what it's referring here. But then the, the, the level above that, that's going to be the actual hosts of angels that come back and fight with Yeshua on the day of judgment as well. Um, that's where it says to work vengeance on the spirits of deceit and of Beliar. All right, that's going to be the unclean spirits and of uh, Satan and Nimrod and the whole crew, the beast, the second beast, the dragon, the kings of the earth, and all the unclean spirits that work on their behalf. Verse four, and in the highlights and the highest of all dwells the great glory far above all holiness. So now he just skipped several levels, several levels of heaven. He just went straight up to talk about the highest level. He says in verse five, and in the heaven next to it are the archangels who minister and make propitiation to the Lord for all the sins of ignorance of the righteous. Now, some people would, would suggest that this is now referring, since he just skipped in description, to talk about the seventh layer, the highest layer, that now verse 5 is now referring to the level right next to it, which would be the sixth layer, where he then goes in to talk about these archangels, which is appropriate to First Enoch and other places where these archangels would dwell at one of these higher levels of the heaven who minister and make propitiation to the Lord for all the sins of the ignorance of the righteous. So guys, the reason why I included it right here is because we just read in Leviticus chapter four about unintentional sins. You thought all that was pretty boring, right? You thought reading about all these unintentional sins, the priest does it unintentionally, uh, the congregation finds out they've done something unintentionally, an individual does something unintentionally, all of them got to bring sacrifices in order to make a, a propitiation and atonement through the priesthood. This is already happening every day, all the time for the angels in heaven, in the layers of the heaven above, which means they have an, a temple that they do this in. There's an actual, it's the same, the same concept, the same instructions, the same requirements, the same. That means they have animals that they have to bring forward to make a meal before the father. The, the angels are a part of a priesthood. This is why they're even being referenced as ministering flames of fire, servants who go out to, to help those who are inheriting uh, salvation. This is why they're even being compared to Yeshua in the, the book of Hebrews, because they're the original priesthood before a priesthood was given on earth to, to mankind. Before Yeshua manifested in the flesh, lived, died, resurrected, and became a high priest in the Chalcedic order in the temple in heaven, before all that happened, this was happening the whole time since creation began. The whole time this was happening, there's a priesthood in heaven that the Father designed from creation from day one. He made the angels on day one. He made a priesthood on day one. I hope to. I hope this encourages you guys. I hope this is exciting to you to understand the relevance to all this. How the Father has got your back the whole time. This whole time the Father's had your back, and in it it says in verse five. Are these archangels who minister and make propitiation to the Lord for all the sins of ignorance of the righteous? offering to the Lord a sweet-smelling savor, a reasonable and bloodless offering, exactly what we just read in Leviticus. And then in verse 7 says, In the heaven below this are the angels who bear answers to the angels of the presence of the Lord. So this is assuming it's talking about the fifth heaven now, a different level where they have a different class of angels who bear answers, right? So this was talking about earlier with one of the callers, with Omar, about the angels in heaven recording all the deeds of mankind, and then they bring them to the Father. I also think this could be a part of, the, um, of them bringing forth the prayers of the saints to the priests, just like you would have the regular uh, Levite ministers uh, receiving the sacrifice and the prayers of the people of Israel and then bringing them forward to the high priest. 
So there's a conduit. There's an intermediary process happening, exactly like we see laid out with the priesthood in Leviticus and, and Exodus and Deuteronomy. In verse 8, it says, In the heaven next to this are thrones and dominions in which always they offer praise to God. When therefore the Lord looks upon us, all of us are shaken. Yes, the heavens, the earth, and the abysses are shaken at the presence of his majesty. But the sons of men have no perception of these things, sin, and provoke the Most High. The sons of men don't have a clue that these things are happening in heaven for them on their behalf. So this is why... Even when you're a righteous man, this is why I want to focus real quick. I see we have a caller. I'm going to get to your call in just one second. Even in verse 5, I just want to focus, guys. Look closely at the language. It says, In the heavens next to us are archangels who minister and propitiation to the Lord for all the sins of ignorance of the righteous. The angels are not making propitiation for the unrighteous. They're making propitiation of the sins of ignorance for the righteous. So even during the days that we're reading in, Le in the book of Leviticus, where we got Moses, Aaron, they're leading the people of Israel in this, in this traveling nomadic tribes uh, all together as a big caravan. And they've got this traveling mobile tabernacle that they have with them. Even in the days, remember, like we talked about last week, where it talks about they didn't get the tabernacle completed until the first month of the second year that they had left from Egypt. And they got all the instructions to build this thing in the third month of the first year. So that means it was approximately eight and a half months where this thing was not completed and they were not ready to have it ordained. They were not ready for it to, to start sacrifices on it. So were the atonement, was was mankind somehow missing atonement? Were the righteous ones like Moses uh, and and Aaron and uh, and Joshua and Caleb, like those, those kind of guys that, that the father commends as righteous people, in those days when there wasn't an actual system set up for them to do anything, according to like the one in heaven, was there anyone making atonement for them? Yes, the angels. They've been there the whole time. They're a part of an angelic priesthood. This is a part of their, their job given to them since they were created. This is why they come to teach mankind the Torah. The entire book of Jubilees is an angel teaching Moses the, the point of the Torah, how, it's, how his forefathers kept it, reasons for why certain laws are. That's the job of a priest. Also, the angel of the presence has been traveling in Exodus and now in Leviticus with the Israelites in the wilderness is a priest who literally presides over the sacrifices that are being done and accepts them, yes or no. We're going to see that here uh, in a couple of weeks, next week in chapter 8 and 9. That is the job of a priest. <laughs> but they're just at a higher level of priesthood than mortal mankind. And they're actually doing the same Torah, the same law, the same propitiation efforts to the Father on behalf of the righteous mankind on earth. Why? Because they're a part of Israel too, guys. They're a part of the covenant also. Hey, Gilbert, can you can you hear us? Oh, yes. Shalom, hey, brother. brother. How are you doing? Hey, Shalom. Thanks for calling in. Um, bro, <clears throat> uh, my question is back on um, Leviticus chapter 3. Sure. Um, the uh, verse 17, he talks about um, throughout your dwellings for a, a perpetual, uh, let me try it over, a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings that you eat neither fat nor blood. Okay, so my question is um, talking about the fat there, which in, um, in the Hebrew is uh, Kalib, 
which can either be um, to be fat or fat literally or figuratively or the choice part, you know, the, the fat. The, so is he speaking to the priest to not drink blood or eat the fat or us not to eat the fat? Is it figuratively or... Um, you know what? What have um, what have you come across, bro, in your studies as far as that? The the blood seems like a general commandment to all of Israel, not donating any blood. Uh, specifically, that command is definitely parroted in the instructions given to the priests in this moment because they don't want to put blood as a part of their sacrifices, right? The fat, to my understanding, in this particular occasion, is speaking to the priesthood about how because we just got all these instructions about how they should trim the fat, right? Right. So, and that's not their portion to eat. So they're not supposed to eat that part. Okay. Does that mean so you, so you, and I, you and I are not priests. We're not going through this process like it's being described here. It's not in the same context. So your question, I'm guessing, is can we eat fat? Right. <laughs> okay. It's, uh, yeah. So like the meat of a nice steak. I enjoy <laughs> That's uh, personally, we, my wife and I studied this out a few years ago and we couldn't find any definitive conclusion as far as, you know, because you have to think about when, when you're trying to trim out fat out of something, you, you're not getting it all. Like you, you can, there's fat, even in some of the most choice piece of meat, when you think you've trimmed right, out, right, out, right, out right, right. you know that if right. you've cooked any type of meat. Yeah. So, so you're going to get fat. Yeah, you're going to get small particles of fat. You would literally have to like dissect every strip of the, of the tender of the muscle in order to right. try to pull away any fat from it. Um, I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think in the context of what it's saying, it's specifically speaking about the priest doing this, uh, this type of um, uh, offering and how they're supposed to cook it up, which portion goes to the father, which portion goes to them. Yes, the blood is included as a general commandment for them in here to not include any of that in the sacrifice as well. So I think because it includes that in this statement, it makes people think, well, I'm not supposed to eat blood, so then I'm not supposed to eat fat, right? So I think personally, we try to, tr my wife and I, we, we had the same conversation you're having about two and a half, three years ago. Our conclusion we came to was, all right, since we can't find any specific scripture that says in all of your food, never eat fat, Strip it, even if you have to, you know, strip it up to the, to the, to the most necessary ligament and and muscle fiber to get rid of all the fat. Um, we think that this is for the priests. We do try to trim the fat on our meats that we cook as a general practice, but we don't go into every center fiber and sinew to pull out every single piece of fat. Right. So as yeah, a, a few versions earlier, it says all oh, the fat is the Lord's. You know. Right. And I. I enjoy a little piece uh, of fat with my meat. It's got all the savor in there, you know, so right, I can understand right. why he says, hey, uh, um, the fat that's mine, because, you know, I, I enjoy that part with the meat. And yeah. when I first came into Torah about uh, four years now, I just had a birthday uh, this month. So, you know, my awakening to, but. Um, aren't there, aren't there fats in butter? Oh, yeah. You, you know, know so that's that's why it, I, I was, you know, just pondering that because um, he's also talking about if you bring a goat. So mm -hmm. it doesn't apply to all of it. You know, he's, he's talking about goats. But if we learn how, how it works, uh, the priests are going to eat that. Uh, so he could be talking to them, right. you know. But 
what I really enjoyed when I first woke up to Torah and, and started looking at the um, sacrifices, um, I was amazed how like, hey, my father's like me. Sometimes he likes corn. Sometimes he likes oil with it. Sometimes he says, hey, uh, put some wine in this one. Uh, sometimes he says, I like it well done. Burn it all the way. And it's like, man, it's, yeah. it's so amazing. You know, we are not that uh peculiar that it, it only things only apply to us like if we're in our father's image like man who doesn't like the smell of hey someone's barbecuing like three houses down that's right you can smell yeah. it it's like man what a sweet savor and it's like wow what a, imagine to be able to be a part of that bro as a as a priest you know like oh yeah they had a full plate when the they were duties. done wow that's a that's amazing to me but yeah, um, and, I, and in fact i think there's a, pa a passage in um there's a passage in, it's, I have to go look it up. I, I'm, it's either Numbers or Deuteronomy, but it talks about, um, you know, the, the portion for the priests that they received. Basically, the, the priests got a lot more than they could actually eat, especially when people are, all the 12 tribes of Israel are bringing their first fruits. We already read, a, a, you know, a slight inference of this in, in Leviticus 2, where it talked about certain things that are brought for first fruits you shouldn't use for sacrifice. But but that's not even talking about the things that were used for sacrifice that are brought for first. Well, I was, that's amazing because I was just thinking about that. How like, man, if everybody, the all uh, millions are bringing all that food, like, man, they were, you know, they were not for lacking of eating, you know? And, yeah. and a lot of times it says uh, each man, their portion, um, all of the, all of the, the priests got equal right. portions. Like, you know, if there was only one bread, okay, well, all the priests gets a piece of this one, but you know, you got thousands of people in line, like, you know, that, that's now that's a good barbecue, but the more we and, learn and what, about what's more though, real quick, what's more is the priest's family also got to eat of what was appointed for the priesthood. So man. not just the men, wives and yeah. children get to share in this offering as well as for it. So they're getting fed. This is why they didn't have a portion among Israel. Instead, they were supposed to be, the conduits for this yeah. so it was a big deal um that that people bring in their first fruits and bring their sacrificial offerings for different reasons that are listed because it kept the priesthood fed literally yeah literally yeah, yeah. it's yeah, amazing, it's amazing. When, yeah when we follow the instructions of, of our father um things work out greatly it's kind of like it's life and life more abundant you know that's right. That's right. So imagine this, what what you and I are talking about, right? It sounds so natural. It sounds so easy. We're just talking about making meals for people, making sure everybody gets fed, making right. sure there's enough. People are people are volunteering more than enough food because that's, you know, because uh, statistically they're required to bring a certain amount. So therefore that that amount becomes exponential and it and becomes more than the people who are cooking that amount can actually eat for themselves. So it becomes an abundance. So the whole right. purpose of this, the whole setup that the father created is, is a system of multiplication that would create an abundance. And that abundance goes to those who have a lack. How beautiful is that? The wow. whole system that he created that he calls righteousness is just making sure everybody's fed. Right. You know, it's kind of like we have a heavenly father that's kind of worried about us, you know. <laughs> right, right. It's like, you know, granddaddy wants to make sure, grandmama, they want to make sure everybody's fed at, at the at the dinner, right? Did you get enough, sweetie? They come three or four times and they try to put more on your plate. You know, it, it's, it's a stigmatism that, that uh, you know, 
growing up in the church or those just, you know, still in the church, like, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's looked like, like if it's a curse, man, they had to sacrifice. And it's like, man, you know, they got to, you didn't, they didn't have to, they got to, you know, but yeah, it's amazing, bro. I just had that question. I don't want to take up too much time. You, I know you're kind of it's running, okay, but um, put something on screen for us real quick. Um, okay. One of the uh, blossom here in the chat, she is where to go. She is encouraged by what we're talking about. And she referenced the new Jerusalem because this is exactly what's in my mind as you and I are having this conversation. This is the fulfillment of the kingdom. And I put it on screen here for us. This is the, this is Zion chapter 54 of, of, of Isaiah is the father talking to Zion. Zion actually starts talking back during that correspondence. This is the new Jerusalem. And look what she says. Come, all who's thirsty, come to the waters, and you without money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy milk, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on that which is not bread, and your labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what's good. Your soul will delight in the richest of foods. This is this is when the new Jerusalem comes down. This is also what is being referenced here in Revelation um, 22, when the when the Spirit and the Bride say, "Come." This is the same the same invitation that's that there's that the spirit and the bride are saying. It's um, anyone who's thirsty, anyone who desires water, drink of life, drink freely. This is the new Jerusalem that comes down, and the water of life that comes out from the throne, that is watering the trees of life. It goes out of the new Jerusalem, just like it originally went out of the Garden of Eden, and it's gonna it's gonna uh, heal all the water courses of the entire earth, as Ezekiel forty seven talks about, because those were destroyed leading up to the second coming. So the new Jerusalem comes down literally to save the ecosystem of the earth, but also to bring free food and water to all the survivors of the nations and the city itself in a, you know, in a poetic prose here is talking is like, it's actually speaking and putting out this mass invitation to the whole world. Come get your food, get your water. You don't need money. Come. The father just wants to make sure. How beautiful is that? It's so easy. So it, it breaks my heart. When we see people telling us that the the law the law of God is a burden or was um, inferior standard of behavior that we now can do better, it breaks my heart because the whole purpose of the Father's law was to make sure that we are loved, fed, clothed, and cared for. And it's very exactly. simple, very simple. So thanks for calling in, brother. Thanks for your encouragement. Oh, great. Thank you, brother. Have a great day. Shalom. All right. Shalom. All right, guys, we're going to finish up our, our two quick passages here in Leviticus. Um, let's go back to chapter five. I'm sorry. Let's finish a companion passage real quick. We just we just read about all this fascinating stuff happening with the angels in heaven as they're doing the tour in heaven as well on behalf of, this, of the ignorance of the sins of the righteous. Right. When we make a mistake and don't know it, who's covering us? God's already got it covered. He already has a system in place that's covering us. So now let's look at, we've talked about, we saw that the, the angels in heaven are doing what's called bloodless offerings, which is exactly what we've been reading in Leviticus chapters one through four about they're supposed to handle the blood a certain way before they chop up the meat and put it on the altar to cook it. They have to get the lifeblood out of it. So that's the same thing. Now, here's the difference. A lot of people will be asking, wait, Sean, are you saying that there's animals with blood in heaven? I personally think that the animals with the animals in heaven that we just saw the, at these different levels of heaven that the angels are using, that they have their own first fruits they keep. What did I just talk about earlier with one of the callers with Kyle, that in Jubilees chapter six, 
it tells us the angels in heaven have been keeping Shavuot since day one of creation. Shavuot is about bringing your first fruits. It's literally called the festival of first fruits. Well, what first fruits do you bring if you're an angel in heaven? What are the first fruits listed in the in God's word through the prophets? Oil, bread, grain, corn sometimes, animals. What do we see that the angelic priesthood doing in heaven on behalf of mankind on the earth? Bringing a reasonable, sweet-smelling, savor, bloodless offering. So personally, just like the angels in heaven, and why I got this passage and another one I'm going to put on screen here, I agree with Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, to declare to you that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. When you and I get resurrected, we, be, we, get, we gain, we are given an imperishable, incorruptible body that's made like the angels. There's two realities that we are at work with uh, creation, where we live and then everything above us. And everything above us is made in the spirit. It's made a spiritual body, just as the previous chapter uh, verses in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 39 through, through 49, actually go into express the difference between a man made of dirt versus spiritual beings made of spiritual heavenly substance, which is a different thing, which is what our Messiah, Yeshua, is now made of. He got his resurrected body, so he's now made of spirit. It's a different type of physics. And all the animals, to my understanding, in heaven would be made of this spirit as well, different type of spirit. It seems to be. It seems to be. Now, here's, here's the caveat. Animals in heaven do not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not appointed for them. It's only appointed for mankind through the covenant to inherit. That's a, that's a term for someone that is, is given something through the will. I mean, someone has to die first to get it. So that's, a, that's terminology about flesh and blood. Mankind, mortal mankind, does not inherit the kingdom of God because we're still perishable in this body of flesh and blood. Only when we get our incorruptible resurrected body of, of made of water and spirit and light, like the angels, one that's imperishable, do we get to inherit the kingdom of God? Could we have animals of flesh and blood in the kingdom of God? Yes. Could the layers of the firmament above us, where these angels are having their own land, their own houses, as Enoch 38 talks about, having their own uh, places where they bring in their first fruits and they farm and they have their own animals. Could those animals that they exist around be made without flesh and blood? Like the angels are made without flesh and blood? Yes, they could. But the point is, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be. They, they can still interact together. Just like the father we see in Leviticus with this angel of the presence, one of these powerful angels of the presence, who's with Israel, is accepting the bloodless physical flesh offering and calls it good on behalf of mankind down on the ground. So just like that's happening, you can have a you can have a mixture of them, if you will. Just like Adam, who was made of flesh and blood, was put into the garden, the kingdom of righteousness, and, and he was put, he was made outside the garden, and then he was put into the garden. Jubilees 2 and Genesis 3 explain this to us. So while he was in the garden, he's living amongst the angels. They're teaching them how to behave, how to protect the garden, how to interact with the animals that were also in the kingdom of the garden, which was the kingdom of heaven. And then when he and the animals were kicked out because of Adam's disobedience, then they were on the earth and they spread out, the animals spread out to the different places appointed for them. 
So that means flesh and blood animals were already in the kingdom of heaven at one point. And is one of those flesh and blood animals where the father made coats for Adam and Eve. So the point is, guys, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to express something about the the way that the, the father's priesthood works with doing these sacrifices is the same thing that's kept in heaven. But people have this very poor understanding of what's promised to us to have this this glorified, incorruptible spiritual body like the angels have, like Yeshua received interacting in a world amongst flesh and blood because it's always been happening it started in the beginning happening right and it it can still i mean it's still have angels still who are made of spirit still interact with flesh and blood humans to help minister and do different things for them it can still happen today i think personally it's very interesting though that in the book of tobit the angel that goes with tobit to help him he tells him later at the end of the story I know you think you saw me eating, but I was just showing you a vision. I actually cannot eat your, I wasn't eating your food. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it as far as like they do have animals up there that are not made of flesh and blood, but made of spirit that are different, that, that may look the same. They're just made of a different type of physics, just like Jesus looked the same when he was resurrected, but he now has a glorified spiritual body. He's made of a different type of physics. He can come and go like the wind. He can disappear inside of a locked room. He can manifest, reappear. He can ascend up to heaven like nothing, like the angels. He can fly. So he now has a different, a different body made of spirit like the angels. I don't know if they specifically have animals made like that by which they're doing these sacrifices also, or if they have normal flesh and blood animals up there as well, because those flesh and blood animals are not inheriting the kingdom of God. That's a term used for mankind. I hope to, to make that delineation for you. It's a very, very different context we're talking about here. Um, also in Revelation 19, we see that there are animals in heaven. We see that there's horses that Yeshua comes back on. I mean, that's a, that's a real animal. And it says it in multiple places. This is not some metaphoric i know people love to take revelation and just and just i don't know who convinced them that they have license to just reinterpret everything in revelation it, it breaks my heart really but i see it all the time all over the place even well-studied scholarly people as soon as they get the book of revelation they're just like well you know it's all metaphoric we you know we have to look for this and that and this i mean it's all metaphoric i'm like no actually it uses specific concrete words with real definitions and then if there is something that's a metaphor it then tells you what the metaphor was and explains the meaning to you so I don't know why you think all the concrete definitions are suddenly metaphor as well. So it's like, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a bad deception. But here in Revelation 19, 11, 12, and also verse 19, it says, there I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. This is in heaven. It's writers called faithful and true with righteousness. He judges and wages war. He, he has eyes like blazing fire, many royal crowns on his head. He has a name written on him that only he himself knows. Hopefully that'll quiet down all the sacred namers. Verse 19, he says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies assembled to wage war against the one seated on the horse and against his army. So that's this is the second. It actually refers to it again in verse 21. And three times in this passage, it talks about Yeshua, our Messiah, returning on an actual horse from heaven. He didn't come down to the earth and grab a horse from here and then go and do the battle of Armageddon and take out the wicked and handle the beast and false prophet and all that. No, he comes through the ferment with a horse. Hopefully to give you guys some reality here <laughs> to what the father created, 
where you live. It's amazing. He puts you in a, in a house. You're at, you're at level one. He lives at level seven. And there's a whole bunch of levels in between where all these ministering angels are that all have different purposes in the creation and in the storyline. And oh, by the way, they have farms. They have houses. They have requirements to keep Torah. They have animals. They bring first fruits. They celebrate Sukkot. They celebrate Sabbath every week. They do the same things we do. They just do it right. We struggle doing it right. So they exist in the same type of reality that we do with water and land and trees and mountains. Read the book of Enoch, read Revelation, read Zechariah, read Ezekiel. There's a river of life and the mountain of God with beautiful trees, with rams that are skipping, with <laughs> a land flowing with milk and honey. That means there's cows and there's bees. It's the same creation that you were put into. It's just on a different level of the house. So, uh, you know, I hope to encourage you guys. I don't mean to belabor this topic, but I really think it's super important to understand the correlation of what's happening. When we read the supposedly boring stuff in Leviticus about the, the priests doing sacrifices and the world is trying to tell us that's evil and the father's trying to tell us that it's a sweet smell and aroma, that it's righteousness if we do these things properly. And then he tells us that this is what he does in heaven. So we have to get past the indoctrination of the enemy that wants to lie to us and stick with what the father said is good. Leviticus 5, if someone sins by failing to testify when he hears a public charge about something he witnessed, whether he has seen it or learned of it, he shall bear the iniquity. Or if a person touches anything unclean, whether the carcass of an unclean wild animal or livestock or crawling creature, even if he's unaware of it, he's unclean and guilty. If he touches on human uncleanness, anything by which one becomes unclean, even if he's unaware of it, when he realizes it, he's guilty. Or if someone swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do anything good or evil, in whatever matter a man may rashly pronounce an oath, even if he is unaware of it, when he realizes it, he is guilty in the matter. If someone incurs guilt in one of the, these ways, he must confess the sin he's committed. He must bring his guilt offering to the Lord for the sin he's committed, a female lamb or a goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest will make atonement for him concerning his sin. If, however, he cannot afford a lamb, he may bring to the Lord restitution for his sin, two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a sin offering, the other is a burnt offering. He is to bring them to the priest, who shall first present the one for the sin offering. He is to twist its head at the front of its neck without severing it. Then he is to sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, with the, while the rest of the blood is drained out at the base of the altar. It's a sin offering. And the priest must prepare the second bird as a burnt offering according to the ordinance. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him for the sin he's committed, and he will be forgiven. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two young pigeons, he may bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a sin offering. He must not put olive oil or frankincense on it because it's a sin offering. I want to stop real quick, guys. What it's describing here is, look, if you can't even afford, because you know this is something that you may become unclean because you touched a dead animal or you had to bury a family member, you become unclean. And, and that's a, a circumstance in life that sometimes you can't always control. So therefore, if you can't afford to bring forward the more expensive thing, where well, you can bring something less expensive, like some, some pigeons. Oh, you can't afford that? Okay, then bring something even less expensive, like a tenth of an ephah of fine flour. Guys, that's literally a handful of flour. So if you're if you're poor and you come across some circumstance that you can't, that you know caused you to be unclean and you want to you want to go celebrate the Sabbath or Passover or Sukkot or Shavuot, and you need to come before to the temple, but you're unclean. We need to make atonement for that, right? So therefore, you can at the very minimum literally bring a handful of flour. Who told you this is burdensome? 
And why would you need to come forward? Because you're trying to get close to the presence of God that's flowing through this angel of the presence back then. This was a part of their to fulfilling righteousness. They wanted to come have a meal with the Father. They wanted to step into his presence and bring forward an offering and have that prepared by a priest properly and given back to them to eat part of their portion. They wanted to. This was this is a part of the feast day. It's to have a feast with your God, your Father, your heavenly creator. And he's trying to tell you, look, if these if these life circumstances happen, you become unclean and you're not in a good financial position, you can literally bring me a handful of flour and it's all good. Like he's trying to make it as easy as possible. He goes on to say, uh, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 12, he says, he is to bring it to the priest who shall take a handful from it as a memorial portion and burn it on the altar top of the offerings made by fire to the Lord. It's a sin offering. So in this way, the priest will make atonement for him and any of these sins he's committed and he will be forgiven. The reminder will, will belong to the priest like the grain offering. And the Lord said to Moses, if someone acts unfaithfully and sins intentionally, excuse me, sins unintentionally against any of the Lord's holy things, he must bring his guilt offering to the Lord, an unblemished ram from the flock of proper value in silver, silver shekels, according to the shekel, excuse me, according to the sanctuary shekel. It's a guilt offering. Regarding any holy thing he has harmed, he must make restitution by adding a fifth of its value to it, giving it to the priest who will make atonement on his behalf with the ram as a guilt offering. He will be forgiven. If someone sins and violates any of the Lord's commandments, even though he was unaware, he's guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is to bring to the priest an unblemished ram of proper value from the flock as a guilt offering. Then the priest will make atonement on his behalf for the wrong he's committed in ignorance, and he will be forgiven. It's a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before the Lord. Real quick, Leviticus 6, first seven verses, and then we'll, we'll get to some companion passages, and we'll take your calls if you have any. The Lord said to Moses, if someone sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him or stolen, or if he extorts his neighbor or finds lost property and lies about it and swears falsely, or if he commits any such sin that a man might commit, once he has sinned and becomes guilty, he must return what he has stolen or take by extortion or deposit entrusted to him or the lost property you found or anything else about which he's sworn falsely. He must make restitution in full, add a fifth of the value and pay it to the owner on the day he acknowledges his guilt. Then he must bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord an unblemished ram, proper value from the flock. In this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for anything he may have done to incur guilt. Guys, this is super important. People try to actually tell you that the Father only forgives unintentional sins. That is the most ridiculous statement that's ignorant of Torah. The whole point, the Father knows you're going to sin. He gave you a priesthood to make atonement for your sin. Leviticus chapter 4 and 5 speaks about unintentional sins in certain specific cases. But now we've got Leviticus chapter 6 directly telling you about people that have sinned against the Lord in all manners, and in, in different manners, about theft and lying, extortion, all kinds of stuff, right? Stealing, um, finds lost property and lies about it. I mean, that's crazy. Like, you're stealing someone's lost property. And, I mean, that's the point is there is ways for them to make atonement. There's, there is a, a process for the guilty who do it intentionally to come and, and actually have a repentance and change their heart and correct their behavior and make atonement and forgiveness. Like it's absolutely here. They just need to learn the Torah. So at, I've heard that so much in the last three, four years. People try to claim, oh, there's no, there's no sacrifice for intentional sin. And I'm like, then none of, none of humanity is going to be saved. <laughs> none. Then, then the father gave us a high priest in vain, if that's the case. Thankfully, his word doesn't describe that. Thankfully, we we just need to encourage our brothers and sisters who repeat that mantra to read the Torah, to actually learn the scriptures. 
Guys, um, let's look at First Enoch 5, because what we want to do real quick, I hope to express the difference between, we've, we've read in all these passages in Leviticus chapters 1 through 5 and the first seven verses of chapter 6, we've read all these passages about sins and making atonement for them, and then you'll be forgiven. Okay, and this is a process done through the priesthood where they bring animal, grain, flour, different things that require for different reasons. All of it was to make atonement so that your sins would be forgiven. That was the process we read over and over. We just read that in multiple passages. But there is a difference between having your sins forgiven and having your sins taken away. There's a difference. I'm going to show you that difference right now. First Enoch, chapter 5. This is going to be in verses 6 through 9. All the elect shall rejoice, and there shall be forgiveness of sins, and every mercy and peace and forbearance. There shall be salvation to them, a goodly light. That's the resurrection. When you're raised from Sheol and you're given this spiritual body, the incorruptible, imperishable, you're being given the light of immortality. It's Revelation 22.5. For all of you sinners, there shall be no salvation, but on you shall abide a curse. All right, we know this is the curse of the law, the sin and death. For the elect, there shall be light and joy and peace, and they shall inherit the earth. That's what we were talking about earlier, right? Those who inherit the new Jerusalem. And then there shall be bestowed upon the elect wisdom. That is Jeremiah, them getting the laws written on your heart, right? And they shall all live and never again sin. Why? Why would you never again sin? Because you have the laws written on your heart, and you will do them faithfully, and you will never again sin. And it says either through ungodliness, they won't sin through ungodliness, or through pride. So your intentional sins, you won't do that. But they who are wise shall be humble. Those who have the law of God in their heart will be humble. And they shall not again transgress, nor shall they sin all the days of their life, nor shall they die of the divine anger or wrath. Because what is the result of sin is death. But you get this promise of the resurrection and get God's ways put on you so that you always will do his ways and you're never going to sin again. You never have to worry about death. You'll always do eternal behavior, immortal life. It's beautiful. Nor shall they, divide, they die of the divine anger, but they shall complete the number of the days of their life. That's an idiomatic phrase for eternal life, guys. And like it even says right here in the next passage, it, it amplifies what it's talking about. Their lives shall be increased in peace. The years of their joy shall be multiplied in eternal gladness and peace all the days of their life. This is speaking about eternal life. So beautiful. So in Jeremiah 31, we get the same promise about the new covenant. When you get to that eternal life and you get his laws put in your heart, it's beautiful. This is why, this is the, the process we're reading about, is that we have atonement, in, while we're in the flesh, we get atonement to forgiveness of sins. That's That word atonement means to cover over. It doesn't mean to remove or to take away. It just means to cover over. The removal of, the taking away of your sins is when you're given a new body that's never going to sin again. This is Jeremiah 31, 33, excuse me, 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant made with their fathers, which took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. A covenant they broke, though I was husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and inscribe it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. 
No longer will each man teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. You guys remember we talked about earlier with one of the callers in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Talks about the least and the greatest in the kingdom. Oh, look what he just mentioned here. He's going to take those who he resurrects. He's going to put it, their law, his law on their mind and their hearts. And all of them, from the least of them to the greatest of them, will have his law on their mind and their hearts. Look, if, if you know, if you, if you get resurrected and you get into the kingdom and you figure out that yet you're one of the quote unquote least, you're still resurrected in the kingdom. It's going to be amazing. That's why Yeshua talks about even those who are least in the kingdom are greater than John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was in the flesh. He was still learning the behavior of the Torah. He was still practicing it with diligence and discipline. He was considered righteous. He was considered the greatest of the prophets, according to Yeshua's own words. But even that is less than someone who's called the least in the kingdom. Why? Because everyone who's even the least in the kingdom will have the fullness of God's instructions and behavior written on their hearts. They'll never sin again. It's amazing. Excuse me. This is why, also, real quick, guys, this is why we at the resurrection are made greater than even the angels. Because the angels can still sin. They, they don't get resurrection to eternal life. They already have eternal life. And they have to faithfully do the behavior of the Father. Some of them did not. We know that. It's in, clearly, it's in Scripture. Some of them did not. And they, uh, that the, the greater majority of those that rebelled and did not do the behavior of the Father, they've been punished. They're locked away. And there's apparently there's one left. <laughs> this is Azel Satan character who still roams the earth, looking who he may devour and deceive, making war against those who keep the commandments and the testimony of Jesus. Right? So there's still one that is rebelling against that behavior. This, angels can sin. But when we get to the resurrection, we're going to get a different new nature. This is why we're called a new creation in the New Testament. Because we're going to be made higher than the angels, just like Yeshua was made higher than the angels. That's why we are taken into the same priesthood as Yeshua at the resurrection, which is one that's in authority higher than the angels, which is why at 1 Corinthians 6, 3, Paul references us judging the angels because we'll be greater than them. This is, it's, it's, a, it's the promise of the covenant, guys. This is the promise of the covenant. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful promise and it all makes perfect sense. We just take the words for what they say. Hebrews chapter 10. So therefore, this is the difference between an, a priesthood that's making atonement for your sin versus when you get to the resurrection, your sins are taken away from you. That's why in Hebrews chapter 10, 1 through 4, when it mentions those who are being made perfect, who draw near, these sacrifices, they don't make them perfect. The only time that you're made perfect, which in the Greek is this word for complete, is when you're resurrected. So let me read the passage real quick. It says, For the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the realities themselves. It can never, by the same sacrifices offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Guys, you could easily say it could never resurrect to eternal righteous behavior those who draw near to worship. Because the sacrifices of the, as he goes on to say, the blood of bulls and goats, right? If it could, would not the offerings have ceased? You see what it's saying? It's a cover, atonement is a covering over. 
So all these sacrifices were meant Leviticus where the people would come forward and bring for different reasons. It was just a covering over temporarily in this mortal flesh so that they can be qualifying for the resurrection, right? And faith and belief. Father's going to send his son to become the high priest that, that allows them to be saved, be resurrected into eternal life. So they're a part of this long drawn out process over time that's fulfilled with the Messiah's position. But the actual offerings, if they could have made someone complete and given them this, this promise that we just read about Enoch and Jeremiah, then those sacrifices would have done that. But they don't do that. That's not their intent. Their intent wasn't to give you, to resurrect you to an eternal glorified body that has perfect heart. It was to cover over your sins while in this flesh to create forgiveness. For their worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt the guilt of their sins. This is why... 1 John 1 8 says that he who says he's about sin is a liar. If you're in this mortal flesh and you haven't attained to the resurrection like Yeshua has, and you're in this mortal flesh, you're still alive, there's you have sin in your life in some regard. This is why we constantly disciple. We constantly sanctify ourselves by putting his word in our heart, learning it, getting better at it, practicing, confessing when we mess up. We we do our we do constantly do this. It's the process of our life. We are faithful until the end. Then we're going to be resurrected, we'll be saved. Verse 4, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's right. So everything we're reading about in Leviticus, they're bringing forth these sacrifices. That's not giving them this new body with no sin inside of it, like we were promised in Enoch and Jeremiah. It's just a covering over temporarily. There's a huge difference there. It's the verbiage and the terminology of atonement to forgiveness versus getting a new resurrected glorified body with, that will never sin again. Your sins have been taken away. You'll never, ever have to worry about this body of flesh again and have to be struggling with sin, sin or temptation. You'll never make that mistake again. You'll never have to worry about the penalty of sin. You'll just have to, you'll just get to enjoy peace and eternal life. This is literally why in Ezekiel 36, Yahweh says, I will, I will make peace with them because that's part, that's the promise of the resurrection is that you're at eternal peace with the creator because you never sin again and you never have to worry about it, never have to think about it because it's going to be on your mind and your heart, you have the same behavior as the Father and the Son. You'll be perfected. You guys, I hope this has been a blessing to you. If you have any quick questions, uh, if you have any commentary, the, the link is at the bottom of the screen. You're welcome to call in. Just please be sure you're ready to be on camera. I'm going to scroll through some of the chat real quick, see if there's any questions anyone dropped that I might have missed while I was going through the rest of that. Michael Stevens is asking throughout the New Testament says by his blood, we're justified. How do you interpret that? Um, let me see. When did you ask this? About 10 minutes ago, brother. I'm not sure if you got here late. If you didn't hear, you know, I know we've been going for two hours and 12 minutes now, but um, I did reference this earlier when I talked about by his blood, it represents his obedience. This is what Hebrews five, six through 10 explains to us. Um, all these metaphoric uses of this terminology of priestly language from the sacrifices of the old Testament is the New Testament writers speaking about our high priest, Yeshua, with priestly metaphors. So a metaphor for a priest to bring forward a the blood of an animal that has, is considered sinless, spotless, right? It's, it's unblemished. It's tamim. That is the metaphoric reference to Yeshua. By his blood, we are justified. So by his obedience, he was able to get to this priesthood, which will then justify us before the Father by raising us to eternal life, putting his law in our hearts and minds so that we're made at peace with God. That's the, the overarching process 
by which these small little bumper sticker phrases came from. When people say, oh, we're saved in the blood of Jesus. Okay. Yes, you are. Yes. But that's not the process. That's that's a very just very short descriptive bumper sticker phrase that assumes you understand a lot of the things in the process to make that phrase a reality. So that's why here at you know Kingdom in Context, we try to give you the context of where these bumper sticker phrases came from by expressing to you through the scriptures the process that the son went through to attain to his priesthood so that he can create salvation for you, which is raising you to eternal life. He did that through his blood. His blood is referenced as the conduit for your justification because he did that through his obedience. That's that's where the, the, the blood reference comes from. Hope that's a decent answer for you, brother. All right, so we have a, another caller calling in. Hey, it's hey. me again, Omar. Hey, Omar, <laughs> welcome back. How are you, brother? I'm well, thank you. Uh, you have a different picture. Hopefully it's now. real quick. Um, it's based on what you were saying about Paul and the Nazarite vow. First part probably can be a yes or no answer based on what we already talked about. Um, if Paul were alive today and took the Nazarite vow, would Yeshua do the sacrifice to end it in heaven? If Paul were alive today? If anybody took the Nazarite vow today, well, they there's can't. no, no huh? they can't. They can't take that. There's no active priesthood. There's no temple. But they can't, they can't fulfill the instructions for that. There's a there's a sacrifice required at the end of that vow. Right. Well, but wouldn't isn't Yeshua doing the sacrifices in heaven? Well, you can't take your sacrifice to him. Oh, I got you. Okay. <laughs> you're 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 a part of that process in that number six vow. It's right. not it's not it's not the same. Um, so yeah, there you're missing a lot of opportunity of context there to actually be able to fulfill the requirements of that vow. Um, so yeah, you wouldn't be able to fully fulfill it. Now, I know a lot of people in different Torah communities talk about the number six vow and they talk about that they want to do it. And because they have because literally all it is is a vow of dedication, you know. Is, is, it, is an our expression of your dedication to the Father, if I could simplify it. So if anyone feels compelled or led to do that, hey, man, you're welcome to do that. But you, I mean, according to the, the instructions of Torah in the number six, you just literally can't fulfill it in this moment of dispersion. Or so if you, you want, just like we can't fulfill Passover truly in this moment of dispersion or Sukkot or Shavuot or Day of Atonement, but we just we try to keep it as best we can in memorial. I got you. So, so it'd be like Passover today. We, we would do everything we could. Right. But it's almost more symbolic. Sure. It's just you, just like in the book of Tobit, chapter two, he's in exile in Assyria because he was a part of the tribe of Naphtali. They were invaded first by the Assyrian kings. And so he's in exile in, in Assyria and he's trying to keep Pentecost. He's trying to keep Shavuot. And so, but of course he can't go back to Jerusalem, which was still a standing temple at the time because the Southern kingdom hadn't been invaded yet. So they still had the standing temple. And, and you know, this is during the days of Isaiah and Hezekiah and, and Manasseh. And this is Tobit across the, the Euphrates in Assyria and Ectoban in captivity under your Syrian authority and rule. And he wants to keep Shavuot, but he can't come back to keep it. So he and his wife just make a memorial meal and dedicate it as Shavuot to the father. So another way of putting that maybe would be you can take it, but you just can't get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in all reality, like we want to dedicate our life. It's sanctification and discipleship. Right. Anyway, again, that's why I try to give you a quick synopsis. The number six vow is just an outward show of something that should be taking place in your heart anyway. Right. But it's just an outward show. This is why the disciples asked Paul for this outward show, because 
they had heard all this gossip that Paul was teaching converts in, in Asia Minor that he was teaching them anti-Moses, anti-Torah. And right. so he was, they were like, all right, well, give us an outward sign that these rumors are not true, that you do teach Torah by doing this specific instruction designed to be an outward sign of your dedication to Yahweh and his law. You right. see what I'm saying? So yes. that's why then, they even asked him that. Um, okay. And then you were saying, um, at, you know, you were talking about how, you know, he paid for the other guys and himself because there's a, there's a, a cost. Right. Um, that now, obviously the cost comes with all the things. I mean, obviously a handful of, uh, uh, flour is, is lesser cost if you can't afford it, but there's still a cost. That's right. So would are all the sacrifices that are required of us, that's all just kind of like you said, we can do it to a point, but we can't. I mean, is there a way to do the cost or pay the well, cost you, now? Again, brother, there's no active standing dedicated temple with an, an ordained priesthood to receive your sacrifices. So even if you owned a farm and you had animals and you wanted to bring forward a, a one year old lamb um, for a specific Passover, you can't. Right. You can't so fulfill then, all the steps required in that process. You cannot fulfill them right now because we're in dispersion. This was prophesied. So if you just want to make a meal at home with that, with the lamb, you want to slaughter it and cook it yourself and eat it with your family and call it Passover. That's between you and the father. That's, that's upon your level of you know conviction. But as far as the actual instructions, we are not in a place to fulfill them right now. So then the, the sacrifices Yeshua is doing in uh, the throne room, that would be just the annual stuff. That well, remember, there's a that's a good question. There's multiple layers of priesthood. He's at the top. He's the highest. Was the high priest do? He takes care of David atonement sacrifices specifically. Oh, okay. Um, and of course, he would look over the other priesthoods, in my opinion, as well, to make sure they're doing theirs right. But then there's other like I just read that today. There's other sacrifices with other priests on different levels, which means they're underneath of the authority level of Yeshua. Um, doing their their jobs as well with, with bringing forward, you know, bloodless offerings as well. So uh, there's there's a constant process happening on our behalf uh, by the Father. This is the way it's always been, and Yeshua has stepped into that process. That's always been happening because all the the circumstances of where he went to 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 get to the highest level of the heaven and step into the tabernacle of the Father that's already there. All those circumstances allow him to fulfill all the instructions. Right, because he's got everything in his disposal he needs. He's got a standing temple. He's an ordained priest. He's got the animals. They've got the, the furniture. They've got the right grilling surface. They've got, you know, what I'm saying, we don't have any of that right now. And this is what was prophesied that we would be without temple, without priests, without sacrifices. That we would be in this moment just scattered all all across the plane of the earth under the heaven, and that uh, we're not drawn back to be able to do this type of behavior until he brings the kingdom back. So, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for your answers. Hey, man, no problem. Those are great questions. Great questions. And and hey, look, these types of questions, you know, uh, I'm glad that you're asking them um, because we're going through what Hebrews chapter six, one through three, all the stuff that we read about today that remember how the priests lay their hands on the sacrifices at different points uh, that the yes. people would bring. That's one of the laying on of hands is one of the things mentioned in Hebrews six, one through three is some of the fundamentals of the faith. The laying on of hands, the washings, the uh, the resurrection. That's what the, the writer of Hebrews says. These are just the fundamentals of the faith. So as I go through Leviticus, I'm reading about the fundamentals of this very basic process. So I, I'm glad that you're asking these questions because you're asking a little bit more advanced application of what we're learning about the fundamentals. So hopefully the viewer 
uh, everyone else watching is helping, you know, by from what you're asking and me answering, they're able to put together the fundamentals we've been reading about with some of the more advanced concepts of why Yeshua goes to do these fundamentals in the heavenly tabernacle on our behalf. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. And, so and also, do you have a website? No, it's never, I've not filled it out. We've actually, um, I have a, a domain, <laughs> but it's oh. not, the website's not finished and um, I've never, I, I have not, I, I've got other projects we're working on. I was going to finish the website, but then I started helping with Lighthouse. And so that's a massive website. And uh, and so that's just right. where I just have a little bit of time in the day, right? So um, no, it'll be hopefully in the future we'll get it finished. But ultimately, that's why we just, uh, we have multiple presences on different social medias and here on YouTube and all of our content is you're able to access us through multiple ways to reach us for questions or to see what we talk about and what we teach. So, oh, okay. Yeah. I was kind of wondering, cause you know, I can't always get live, you know, yeah. to ask you questions and you can't always answer questions that are back on old videos. So I was just wondering if maybe there was like an email or something that, you know, yeah, for sure. Kingdom, kingdom and context at Gmail is our oh, most, okay. our, it's in all the video descriptions of all of our videos. You're welcome to email oh. us um, as well as it's, uh, we have a Facebook page and that's where for whatever I've said this in the past. And if you're new to the channel, you didn't hear it. So it basically the currently until lighthouse comes out, Facebook is the fastest way um, in our Facebook group. That's the fastest way you'll probably get an answer on a topic because it, the way it notifies me is so much easier. So with my, with the email system, I get all types of emails, unfortunately. And but with but with the Facebook group that we created for interaction, which the link is in the video descriptions, um, that the way it notifies me with replies back and forth is so much better than the actual messenger as well, because I get a ton of messages that I can't get to in messenger. And so that the, the easiest way to get a question answered for anyone listening, go to our Facebook page uh, with our kingdom of context, hanging on his words, ministry study group page. And that's, it's a study group intentionally. So you can come in there and ask questions about scriptures or about anything that we've taught. Uh, please read the group rules, right, for interaction, because that those groups are designed specifically for all the videos that we put out to answer any questions that you may have about something we've said or mentioned or taught in a video. So, um, and I'm able to inter interact and respond quicker than any other format through that at this point. So, all right. Well, well, I'll, I'll try your email and hope for the best. I'm rather Facebook adverse. So, okay. I understand <laughs> well, more before you go. Good news. Lighthouse is coming out. So hopefully you'll, you'll have another option in the future. I got okay. a question that you might want to uh, help me out in asking as well. If you, if you want to stick around. Okay. And Kyle's so, back. With us. Hey Kyle, welcome back. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks Sean. Yeah. Sorry. I'm still, I'm, I'm sitting here listening and, and chewing on this whole, uh, this whole Paul thing. And I guess I'm just struggling with, it sure seems like because there was a temple standing for those, we'll say, 30 years after the ascension, they were offering at that temple and um, keeping things going the way that they had, they had been for, for so long. But if they rebuild another temple today, um, this scripture in Acts, what is it, Acts 21 or 26? Oh, yeah, it's 2126. It sure seems like it could be used as evidence to suggest to believers today that, well, since since Paul uh, sacrificed and that was post Yeshua, then uh, then you guys should sacrifice, too, now that this temple has been rebuilt over in Jerusalem. And well, I just don't feel comfortable with that. Quick question. I don't have it. I don't have the rebuttal. 
that's fine. Why, why Acts 21? I got two questions for you, for you. Okay. okay. First one is why Acts 21? Why not Acts 20, Acts 18 or Acts 2? When they also celebrate uh, Shavuot and Passover, which there are sacrifices brought forward by the disciples. All the above. I'm fine with, I'm fine with any of those passages. So, because what I'm showing you is that there's a, the re, you answered your own question in the question, which is there's a standing temple that was ordained built and the priesthood that's inside of it is ordinated. They're ordained by the father to be there. We're going to be reading about the ordination of the priests next week in our Torah portion um, with Aaron and how that's an important deal. Okay. So that's why I said earlier in prophecy, the first tabernacle that was built with Moses and Aaron, and all, that was prophesied in the book of Enoch, the standing permanent physical tabernacle that Solomon built. Well, that was prophesied in the writings of Moses. Then the destruction of that standing temple was prophesied, as well as the revelation, the revealing, if, you, if I could use that proper term, of the greater glorious house, both in the book of Enoch and also I think it's in the book of Micah, for the new Jerusalem, when it comes back, also in the book of Isaiah, this greater glorious house, which is a temple where prayer, sacrifice, burnt offerings, and altar is, that takes place. Also, it's also in the book of Ezekiel. I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's, the point is, we have to look at, at why the words the Father gave us through the prophets. So, so for someone today who has a very limited view of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, and they say, well, if there's a standing tabernacle today, then why wouldn't we just do Acts 21? Well, because that's not what was prophesied. Just like Yeshua, we don't, we don't impose things upon our Messiah that wasn't prophesied. So we don't impose things upon the temple that is ministering on the earth when it's not prophesied. So the Father said to us that there would be a specific time that this, this house would stand on the earth and then it would be destroyed. Yeshua talked about it as well. Not one stone would be left upon another. That's why I don't think the current modern wailing wall is the remnants of the temple. Because I think the Romans did exactly what Yeshua prophesied and they took every stone up on top. They, re, they disassembled it completely. So this is where you have, to, you have to parcel out the traditions of men and the impositions of menly traditions when it comes to when they contradict severely and obviously the the promises of the father through the prophets so you know that's why we've we've done multiple broadcasts um, not just on this channel but on on our buddy's channel parable vineyard adam fink where we talked about how if they build another temple in jerusalem that is zionism that's judaism doing that that is not what was prophesied for us so i would not encourage any modern believer to go over there and start doing sacrifices um i don't i don't encourage that's not we're that's not anywhere in the context of scripture. That is a man-made thing. So, so your answer is, is because the temple was still ordained from, we'll just guess at uh, 30 AD to 70 AD. Um, it's because it was still ordained is why there were still offerings going on, even well, though sure. it was supposed to be Okay. Yeah, that's that's the point. That's why Hebrews chapter five tries to tell us if Yeshua is on the ground today, he wouldn't be a priest at all because there's already those who have been appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's the Levites. Yeah. So check out that passage when you have a chance. Just just it, I promise you, brother, this is why you may have seen the, the conversation I had with a pastor a few days ago where yeah. I, I read that passage four or five times over and over to him. And it just was bouncing off of him because he he's never considered it. He's never, he's, he's not, he's been told something else his whole life. He's been told sacrifices are bad and that, that the standard of the temple and the Levites and all that was an inferior standard. Now we're supposed to do a better standard. 
So he's been told all this. And so when he runs into a passage that severely contradicts that teaching, it just takes time to sink in and to really chew on it. And, you know, sometimes you just take your time with that passage. And then some of the passages I presented today about Isaiah, um, they're doing sacrifices in heaven. They're doing sacrifices when they return. Father's going to choose new Levites when he returns. So when the son of man returns, Yeshua is returning in the agency of the father. That's what we're told in all the scripture. It's the very first chapter of Enoch. That's when he chooses new Levites to minister on the earth. So there's just like right now, there's a priesthood in heaven ministering on your behalf. And there's no earthly temple. In the days that you're asking about in Acts 21, there was a priesthood in heaven, but there was still an ordained temple on the earth. Both of them ministering at the same time on your behalf. Just like what we're reading in Leviticus 9, there in the Testament of Levi, there's a eternal temple in heaven that they've been ministering in since the beginning of creation. And then there was a mobile tabernacle that Moses and Aaron were told to build on the earth to minister in. So that means at the same time, angels are ministering on your behalf and these physical, earthly, frail, beset with weaknesses, humans are ministering on your behalf as well. So now we have a faithful high priest. This is the beauty of Hebrews trying to express this with great detail that like we have better circumstances now than we've ever had in all of history because now we have a faithful high priest who's not beset with weaknesses, who will never sin again. He has the promise of the new covenant. He's greater than the angels because we even know the angels can sin. So we now have a faithful high priest who ministers on our behalf in the heavenly tabernacle for you, no matter what's going on in the earth. Whether there's one ordained on the earth or not, it doesn't. Now you have a faithful high priest directly to the Father in the Father's tabernacle, the most honored position of all of creation underneath the Father. And that is happening for your behalf, right? That's why 1 John 1 9 says that, that he's faithful and just. You know, if you confess your sins, he'll cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So this is the beautiful promise. He's also been given the authority in that position to raise you from the dead, to bring you to eternal life. And uh, so the, the beauty of all this is that when he returns, there's still Levites on the earth that he chooses to continue the process on the earth amongst mortal mankind. But remember, mortal mankind will be flourishing outside the New Jerusalem and interacting with the New Jerusalem for, for all the required requirements of Torah. It's Isaiah 2, 2 through 5, Zechariah 14, verses 15 through 20. This is a whole bunch of different places, right? It's actually in Revelation 22, 14 through 17. People just don't realize what they're reading. All of mankind has interacted to is required to interact with the New Jerusalem for feast days, for Sabbaths, to come forward, to learn righteousness, to learn the Torah, so they stop killing each other, so they stop warring. They actually learn peaceful behavior, but they're still mortal. But they're going to be dealing with us, resurrected immortals, in the priesthood of Yeshua, so that there's still, there's always been a dichotomy of multiple priesthoods happening at the same time. And there's still going to be that happening when the Yeshua returns and chooses new priests on the earth. And there's a physical place on the earth where sacrifices happen. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. Almost, oh, sorry. Uh, almost okay. it's a condition of the punishment of Israel is that we don't have the temple and we can't fulfill the, the Torah completely. Yeah, that's that's uh, what um, the Testament of Levi uh, actually talks about a little bit later in chapters 18 and 19, where it talks about the, the reasoning for the veil to be torn was a disgrace to the Levites who had corrupted the priesthood and they were being punished to show that they were ministering with, with um, uncircumcised hearts, 
uh, kind of like some of the passages we read from 700 years earlier before the days of Yeshua with the, the Levites that also corrupted their ways during the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And they were ministering and letting foreigners inside the tabernacle. You read Ezekiel chapter 9, it's horrific. They're actually worshiping false gods inside the temple of Yahweh. Um, so there was multiple places in, in history where the Levites corrupted their way. And um, so this, you know, this, this whole concept that we're in now, it was prophesied in both Testament of Levi and the book of Enoch. Well, actually, the Testament of Levi literally tells you he read it in the book of Enoch that wow. the, the sons of Levi would corrupt their way and that the tabernacle on earth would be taken from them. But then the Messiah would bring back the new tabernacle eternally. That would be here for eternity. So um, it's this is a longstanding story that very few churches talk about because so many churches in our modern culture, especially in the United States. I don't know where you gentlemen are from, but in the United States, we, we're we're completely uh what's what's a good word um uh, overrun destroyed not destroyed but we're we're um we're confused by this supersessionism dispensational style doctrine that says that the church has replaced israel and that all these descriptions of a physical literal happenings now is just a metaphoric application of stuff that's happening inside of you you know what i mean and that jesus is ministering inside your own heart and now you're seated in heaven inside wherever that is so like it just doesn't even it's all wishy-washy metaphors subjective interpretation that's meant because of this dispensational supersessionism doctrine that is pervasive through seminaries for the last hundred years and has now bled into all the churches because those pastors obviously leave seminary and create churches so that's why it's so it's such a it's such a struggle for us to read this information put it into a literal working application and make sense of it because it runs contrary to so many popular teachings that tries to ignore the reality of not just the kingdom come, but the, the literal instances like Kyle is asking about with Acts 21, where I've asked pastors that and they just immediately ignore me. And they'll say, oh, well, they, the temple had to leave, you know, and because it was part of an old system and father was doing something new because he instituted the new covenant with Yeshua and he ascended to heaven. And now we're all in the new covenant. And I'm like, well, then why was there a standing temple that the disciples were doing sacrifices in? They just ignore me, you know, <laughs> so or the or they'll say like the pastor you may have heard recently, he'll say, oh, well, that's just Romans nine. That's just Paul acting like a Jew in front of the Jews. And I'm like, that's a dispensational mentality that you're answering that question with. Paul was a disciple of Yeshua. Why? He's not being duplicitous. He's the one that that reprimanded Peter for being duplicitous, for acting according to the ways of Judaism, which was against Torah and how they treated the Gentiles while he was around the Jews. And then acting differently around the other disciples, like Paul had to reprimand Peter for that duplicitous behavior. So what? Like, the, there's just there's so much misunderstanding because no one knows the Torah, no one's being taught the front of the book. So they go to seminary and only learn the back of the book, and they they're learning way out of context information, and, and they make up subjective interpretations to apply it. And this is why we find ourselves with thousands of denominations and nobody knows the book. So I'm sorry, I'll stop ranting. We have another caller coming in. It's Caleb. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Caleb, hey, welcome, brother. Did you have a question? Hey, uh, hi, Sean. Uh, can, can, can you hear me? I can. Welcome. Okay. Um, I have a question for you, Sean. Who do you rely on? Do you rely on the law of Moses or do you rely on Jesus Christ? And I'm specifically talking about the Holy Spirit because you claim so much, Sean, that we need to keep God's law. So what law exactly you are referring to? The 613 commandments? Caleb. Do you think this is what is justifying you in the eyes of God? Please Caleb. answer the question. Yeah, I'd like to answer your question. Is Jesus doing 
what law is Jesus performing for you to make atonement for you? Well, the scriptures are very clear. If we accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us, understanding that Caleb, the word Caleb, quick, was brother. God. Let, 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 hang quick. on, let me finish, Sean. That's let me finish you, because I'm answering your question. We are justified not through works. Paul was very clear. We are justified by having faith in the sacrifice that was done for us 2,000 years ago, God becoming a man and fulfilling what the patriarchs could never do. And that is why Abraham rejoiced to see that day. You are lying to your audience saying that somehow we need to go back to keeping the law of Moses. Well, guess what? You are preaching Judaism. You are preaching exactly what the Jews are telling yeah. people today. You are yeah, preaching right, that. You're right. Hey, Caleb, Sean, I'm going to jump I, off. Yeah, it's okay. Thanks for calling in, Kyle. Caleb, yeah, I appreciate you trying to call in, brother. You're welcome to, to talk. If you want to set up a formal conversation, but right now, all you're doing is you're interrupting a peaceful broadcast by trying to create contention and accusations, no, which you is are, out of context. You are lying, Sean. You are lying okay, to brother. your audience, you. and you are claiming you are a follower of Caleb, Moses. No, no, I'm That's not. what Caleb, you are claiming. You're not, Caleb, you're not a disciple okay. of Jesus. You're an anti- Okay, brother. I'm going to just put you on mute, okay? So what you're welcome to do, if you're still talking, I hope that you stop so you hear, you hear my offer to you. This is me trying to extend a peaceful olive branch to you, even though you come on to the broadcast trying to, you know, swing punches. Okay. So what I want you to do is I want you to contact me at Kingdom and Context at Gmail. And if you want to have a formal debate, I'll be glad to do that with you. We can talk about the relevance of how a disciple of Jesus Christ keeps the instructions of God, how he disciples, what that, in, what that entails. Is it the just believing in the sacrifice of Christ or is it what Yeshua taught us, which is to do the commandments, which we get those from the law of God. It's not the law of Moses. It's Moses didn't make up anything. It's let let, let me respond to that, Sean, because you so brother, the reason why we're, we're going to put you on mute, I'm saying you, you can call us at kingdom and context because you've already shown that you're not able to abide in peace by calling in to talk to me, you just want to do an instant debate. I'm already here at the end of the broadcast. It's two hours and 38 minutes. I'm, I'm losing my voice at this point. I need some more water. I need to, to stop talking. So we can have a structured conversation done in a peaceful manner in the future. I know who you are. <clears throat> and unfortunately, you've not shown me that you can have a non-structured conversation and keep it peaceful. You're full of accusations. So as a result of that, I am offering you a conversation and you can do that in a peaceful way, and we can have a moderated debate, and we can talk about all these things. It would be fine, all right? Um, we just won't be burning any Bibles on, on camera, though. So you're welcome to do that, Kingdom of Context at Gmail, and I'll be glad to respond to you, and we'll set that up if we can find a moderator. But otherwise, brother, you're just causing contention today. So all right, guys. Everybody, um, thanks for being here. Thanks for sticking so long. You get to see some fun stuff at the very end. And uh I'm just going through the chat and looking for any other possible questions I may have missed while I was talking to Omar and Kyle. All right. So all right. Andy McKenzie's asking, can I garden food prep or continue to build on my house? on Sabbath, if I don't buy or sell. Um, 
you know, I've never thought about building on your house. Um, something about that. I don't, okay. So technically the Sabbath, you know, is, is strictly about your vocation. It's about you earning income, working for money. You're not supposed to, you know, have anyone work for you. You're not supposed to uh, buy or sell or trade on that day. Right. Because usually that results in someone making money as a part of their vocation. So can you garden or food prep or continue to build on your house? Can you garden to me? That's, I mean, if you're not selling the food, you know, at the market and, and, and making profit out of it later, then sure. If it's just a hobby, if it's just something that gives you peace. Yeah. I don't see any problem with that. Uh, food prep. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you're just, you're literally organizing your interior pantry building onto your house. The only, I don't know why that sticks out to me as strange, but it just, but I think more than anything, it just seems like you're not resting. And I know some people would say that the same thing for food prep or gardening. They'll say, well, you're not resting. You could just be relaxing all day. But I mean, I, Honestly, I guess, you know, if you if you feel like that is something that brings you some sort of relaxation and peace and rest, since it's not strictly instructed anywhere in the scriptures that you can't um, build onto your house on that day. Um, but I guess I, all I would say was, is as long as it doesn't stress you out and, and cause you to step into a realm of feeling like you're doing some type of work, you know, what I mean, because you're not. I mean, in addition to not just working for profit or income, the command of the Sabbath is just, you just give your body a break. You know, I'm just relax, just chill out, man. It's good. There's so many health benefits to it that have been studied when you actually just take a rest and, and you allow yourself to recoup and rejuvenate, even if you're not just unconsciously sleeping. So while there's no strict commandment against those things, I would say do them in moderation. Don't forget to actually rest. I mean, it's called a rest day. I mean, you're, you know, so... Um, that way you can, you can parcel it out in a way that brings peace. And because look, if you work six days a week, you work hard, you get your family, you're trying to provide for them. You got bills. You're trying to help the wife with the dishes. You got to put the kids to bed. You got to help wash the kids. You got, you got a lot of things that are going on with the children, with the family, with the wife. And then on Saturday you go out and start building a house, <laughs> man. If that brings you peace, Hey, just pray on it. Go for it, I guess, to a degree. But if it starts to create friction with your family because you're grumpy and irritable, you're too tired, take a day off and rest. I guess that's what I would say, you know. So, all right, guys, I appreciate uh, everyone being here. I'm going to turn it off for now. Um, and I uh, hope that you guys have a wonderful day. Be blessed. And hopefully you guys see you back here next week on tour, uh, tour portions.